VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, October the 18th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's sitting in the producer's chair. You'll be speaking with Dave when you give us a call to get in the queue and on the air. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long-distance 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Now, I hesitate to offer this friendly reminder every single time there's a bit of foggy conditions because God only knows there's plenty of fog around here. But it's worth doing whatever it takes in your vehicle to do whatever you need to do. Flip whatever switch or pull whatever button to engage your taillights and not just rely on your daytime runners because it is pretty thick, certainly in this neck of the woods. Also got what I'm taking as a friendly reminder from a listener regarding Halloween. So I do appreciate the folks that go through great lengths and effort to decorate for Halloween. You know, the old graveyard scene on the front step or on the front lawn or what have you. It is fun to watch. I don't necessarily do that much for Halloween myself, but appreciate the effort many are putting in. This reminder, though, was about your pumpkin. You know, it's really commonplace for people to get a pumpkin for Halloween, especially just, you know, it's part of the staple of the decorating world. I know plenty of people, even even in my neighborhood, they've got their pumpkins out, their real pumpkins, out already. Now, they're destined to be kind of mushy come Halloween, and the reminder goes like this. Given and my skin's crawling just thinking about it. Given how many people are talking about the rodent population where they live, especially when we talk about the rat, the brown Norway rat, maybe, just maybe, the pumpkin is not helping overnight. So you do what you like, right? Of course, absolutely. It's your pumpkin. It's your stoop. But that might be something to consider as we all kind of peer around corners as we go into the backyard or whatnot because there are a lot of rats out there. I hate to mention it, but... There you go. Let's move on to something a little bit more positive. I don't know if I mentioned this in the past. I think I did. If I didn't, I intended to. So Bernie Manning, great friend of mine growing up, his son Finlay Manning is playing at uh, Ripon University down in the United States in the NCAAs. Bernie was down to visit to see a game, and lo and behold, he's sitting in the stands when his young fella scores a hat-trick to down the defending champions, no less. He went on to be named the Midwest Conference Player of the Week and the Red Hawk of the Week. Of course, the Red Hawks are the moniker of the Ripon University Soccer Club and other athletic clubs, so the Performer of the Week. Way to go, Finley Manning. Good on you, buddy. Have you been down around Kitty Vitty Lake to have a look at the new pump track? So it is a really cool-looking track, and I'm sure it's going to be used a lot. So it's in conjunction between the city and Avalon Mountain Bike Association. There's going to be an official opening today at 2.50 p.m., pretty specific, 2.50 p.m. If the weather's bad, they're going to move it off to Friday. But a bunch of the undulations and swings and turns and hills and bumps, it looks like a lot of fun. I'm even tempted to take the bicycle on it to see what it feels like. But the pump track, and I bring it up not only because I saw the news story today about the official opening, but how many people push back about those types of expenditures? When, in fact, these types of things, it's right by the dog park on the boulevard. These types of things are part and parcel with city type of offerings, you know, like the dog park, for instance. And, yes, the pump track and playgrounds and all the rest of it and the, what do they call it, the splash pads and the like. But anyway, if you're into the pump track, good on you. It's going to be fun today. A couple of big names and some sporting notes in history. So Connie Mack, you know that name, Dave? Connie Mack, it was today in 1950 that he he was set to retire after 50 seasons as the uh, the manager of the Philadelphia Athletics. 50 years is a long time to do anything. 
managing the one baseball team for 50 years. Connie Mack hangs him up this uh, today in 1950. And 1977, Mr. October, Reggie Jackson, tied Babe Ruth's record for hitting the uh, three home runs in a single World Series game. He was only the second player to achieve it. I don't know if it's been done since. I should have looked it up before I started babbling on this morning. But Reggie Jackson, three home runs in a single game in the World Series today in 77. Also notable regarding Reggie Jackson, you know, people dig the long ball. They really do. In Reggie Jackson's career, he's also the career strikeout leader. He's struck out over 2,500 times in his illustrious major league career, and nobody quite had the swagger that Reggie had. And we've just gone through the most recent round of Nobel Prizes being awarded here this year. It was today in 1962. This is an interesting one. The Nobel Prize was awarded to Americans, uh, American Dr. James Watson and Brits Dr. Francis Crick and Dr. Maurice Wilkins for recognizing the double helix molecular structure of DNA. And a lot of things in the scientific world changed upon the the identification of DNA and what it's meant for genetic research ever since. Okay, quick shout out to our good friends over at the Hindu Temple. We spoke with Aruna on the show last week. They were going to do a fundraiser to try to send some cash out to the Fiona Aftermath Relief, get it matched by the Canadian Red Cross. Hoping to raise $10,000. They were going to sell 500 tickets for their takeaway plates. By the time we got to it, they were sold out. That's my loss. They sold 580 tickets, raised about $11,000, all done by the volunteers. So I wanted to give you a follow-up on the chat we had with Aruna. Bravo to all involved. All the just community members, volunteers, go in and whip it up, and the dishes are delicious, as you're all aware. And we see you out there, folks, uh, whether it be community leaders or individuals on the southwest coast, because cleanup still continues. Big decisions to be made about how and where and why to rebuild all these types of things. And of course, we can't overstate the emotional trauma suffered by folks in that region. Even if you weren't battered by this most recent storm, I hear the stories, most of them via email, but if you'd like to take the time to pick up the phone and give us some of your thoughts about what we're seeing on the Southwest Coast, it doesn't have to be just from Port Basque. Many, many communities were impacted by that particular post-tropical storm, Hurricane Fiona. All right, let's go. So there was lots of dry goods and clothes and bedding and toiletries and the like sent out to the southwest coast. And, of course, plenty of food in the initial aftermath, water included. And yesterday it was announced by Loblaws, and you've heard the story. So Canada's biggest grocery chain, they introduced a price freeze on their no-name products and pretty popular house brand products. Some 1,500 products will be in it. Now, obviously, this is... Maybe not only, but certainly a public relations maneuver. And people might want to call it a stunt. Okay. At the same time, many people were clamoring for grocery stores to do more to protect the customer because the prices are completely out of control. So they do something, and then people are mad at it. But here's the question. How recently was the prices hiked to then be frozen? And what happens if and when we see continued hopeful reduction in the inflationary pressures? So does the price freeze mean that even if those products might have decreased in price, say 25 cents per unit on whatever we're talking about, are we still going to have to pay the price freeze number? It's going to be extended right through the end of January of next year. It is being pitched or sold as altruism, and of course, absolutely, PR is the driving force behind this. It's maybe the biggest price freeze example that people can find in the world. In France, one of their major grocers, uh, had the name in front of me, can't find it. Anyway, they froze the prices on like 100 items. 
And this one includes some 1500 Now, people will indeed go ahead and take advantage of it. Why wouldn't we? We're all concerned with how much it costs to go to the grocery store. And yes, there's a lot of PR involved. It will be interesting. Like, we hear from Dr. Sylvain Charlebois here on the show all the time. And he, he's really been a great guest and a great source of information. An inquiry into profitability for grocery stores. I understand the concept and the driving force behind it, trying to protect Canadians while we're all struggling with prices about everything we see and touch. But what constitutes legitimate or acceptable levels of profit? That's the one I can't really wrap my mind around. Are the grocery stores profiting well in excess of what they were this time last year, this time the year before? Certainly some of their inputs are up. So just because revenue is up doesn't mean necessarily that profits are up to the same amount. Oh, Dave's giving me some, I'll fill that in bottom show. Thank you, Dave. So that's a big question as the House of Commons tries to evaluate what's going on. But if the prices are going to come down naturally on some of these things, does the price freeze mean I'm still going to pay more simply because the family said that they're going to do this? All right. Here's another question. So we know how important it is for the community and for levels of government to mobilize when we undergo or we're the victims of natural disaster, fire, floods, hurricanes, storm surge, whatever it is. And it's required. And it's welcomed and it's heartwarming. But if you factor in the disaster that it is for Canadians, food insecure, or the pressure on their pocketbook regarding trying to keep some food on the table to feed their family nutritiously, feed themselves, how are we not mobilizing on that front? Maybe I talk a lot about food, but so be it. It's the one thing we all need. We can talk about pressures with filling up our tank. We can absolutely talk about pressures in the classroom and in emergency rooms. But one thing we all have in common, regardless of your political leaning, is we all have to eat. If there's four or five million Canadians relying on a food bank, and yes, there are some stopgap measures in place and some one-time benefits flowing from the, pr the province and the federal government, none of it deals with the root cause. None of it deals with the ongoing, long-term, and into the future concern with food. We will mobilize if there's a fire. How come we have not mobilized to that extent when it comes to what is an absolute crisis for Canadians, is food. Add complications in the country's north. Like we spoke with Leela Evans, the NDP member for Torngat Mountains yesterday. And that was one of the key messages she brought forward. You know, housing instability and food insecurity and the price and access to foods. So I don't know why we haven't done more on that front, but if you want to talk about it, you know, we've had like food personnel and their food on the move, little pop-up operations in community center parking lots, you know, access. Important. The Big Feed Club, DRL Coach Lines, and their partners trying to bring uh, Costco products to where you are as opposed to you having to fuel up your rig and make it into Costco. But we just haven't mobilized to that extent as it pertains to what I consider to be an absolute disaster. All right, let's keep going here. Where's that? that the, here it is. You know, people hear of labor shortage and are trying to square that circle with just how many people continually looking for work. And some of the Stats Canada numbers regarding unemployment are potentially misleading because we don't do a good job of factoring in how many people have stopped looking for a job, labor participation. So it's, that's a real factor that we have to include as we talk about the numbers of jobs that have been created. And remember, in the last 12 months, 87% of the jobs created in this country, public sector. So the economy is strongest when the atmosphere and the landscape is encouraging private sector startups, private sector expansion, private sector increase in the number of jobs and rate of pay. So keep that in mind. 
But as we look to how some of these things are going to be dealt with, I think you're going to hear more and more, maybe more than ever, about the need for a work-life balance. Yes, we have to ensure employers are keeping up their wage offering in line with the consumer price index, for instance, or with inflation, whatever the case may be. And that hasn't necessarily happened. But people just want to have a life. And I know for some of the folks who are older and have worked all their life and worked their hands to the bone and long days. And it wasn't about how many stats you got. It was just a different atmosphere, maybe potentially a different attitude about work. But things are changing, not because I say so, because they just are. And we hear it all the time. Then you talk about the job openings. And here's some numbers that I think are curious. We do know that so many people who have recently retired, looking at some of the pressures, are going back to work, or at least trying to go back to work. And there's all kinds of talk about ageism and whether or not employers are willing to look at your CV if you are indeed 60 plus, we'll say. Here's some numbers about retirees. More than 300,000 Canadians have already retired so far this year, according to Stats Canada. That's up from 233,000 last year, and the year's not even over. To add to it, the number of people nearing retirement age is higher than ever before in this country. Around one in five Canadians of working age between 55 and 64. The average age of retirement is 64, so there's more Canadians than ever in history set to retire. Retiree numbers are off the charts. 300,000 already this year, middle of October. There was only 233,000 in the entirety of 2021. So the labor shortage issue is absolutely very real. And yes, there's going to be all kinds of conversation about wages and the atmosphere or the toxic workplace or benefits or childcare or the flexible working hours, summer hours and or working from home. But those are pretty big numbers when we look at retirees and what that's going to mean for the labor shortage. How are we doing on the phone there, David? A couple of quick ones. There's been all kinds of different programs offered for trying to retain and to recruit healthcare professionals. So as much as we hear work-life balance, retention and recruitment, my goodness, how many times have I said those words in the last number of years? So there's been an agreement struck between the province and healthcare workers represented by NAEP. They've got agreements where you understand in place with other groups, uh, Healthcare Alliance or the Alliance of Healthcare Professionals, QP and whatnot. No real firm understanding beyond what some of the programs that have already been announced. No total sum of the package until some of these negotiations are settled in full. But again, if, if in healthcare, if it was only about money, we might not have the problem that we're looking at. I mean, just think, about, even if you just isolate registered nurses, the bonuses being offered to nurses, whether it be licensing fees to be... Uh, you get a rebate on your licensing fee or have it paid in full or a signing bonus or a retention bonus, they're not taking it. They're just not taking it, which again goes back to wanting to have enough flexibility that you aren't worked to the point where you have nothing on your plate except for work and hope to sleep and back to work and hope to sleep and back to work. So we can tackle that. And if you're the parent of a school-aged child and want to talk about some of the class size and composition and the new teacher allocation review, which is important, and of course the tricky part, as we mentioned yesterday, is that the report delved into part of the collective bargaining process, talking about hiring and layoff protocols based on qualifications, not necessarily leaning in full on seniority. The NLTA obviously frustrated with that, and some of the comments I made on yesterday weren't very much very welcome. But say la vie, we can have the chat. Yesterday, the province talked about tabling legislation regarding pay equity. Also, a confusing conversation sometimes. 
So people will say wage gap in this country is predominantly focused on the fact that there is, of course, there is a difference in the rate of pay, but how many industries dominated by females that are notoriously low-paying jobs? That's part of it. This pay equity legislation will only deal with core government. Now, it's important to remind people that, you know, when you're a unionized employee, the likelihood of being paid less than your male counterpart is probably not very common, if, uh, if at all. But there's one current lawsuit regarding a former officer at Oilco, of course, the splintered out organization from Nalcor. She says, she was a managing finance, she says she was offered a contract paying significantly less than her male counterpart, so she's taking them to court over it. So I don't get quite the frustration that some people are voicing regarding pay equity legislation. Do, does it feel rushed? Maybe, even though we've been talking about it for years. The likelihood of pay disparity being more prominent or prevalent in the private sector, yet this legislation does not cover it. There will be the establishment of a pay equity officer. So that's one of the comments I've seen is that, well, this is just creating another job, another layer of bureaucracy. But the ultimate question will be, will this legislation do what it's intended to do to reduce the wage gap between men and women. And yes, there's a variety of factors in it, and it's not a simple issue, but will this have the intended outcome? And are people inside a core government being paid less as women than men? Apparently, yes. The minister's own words yesterday, Minister Cody said, they're, they're about 85% compliant. So that means that 15% are of concern. So if you want to take on the pay equity issue, we can do it. All right, someone also sent an email about hunting. And this was, you know, gone are the days of sitting in your deer stand. There was no deer, sir, but we used to hunt deer in Alberta. And, you know, the, all the hunting techniques and the patience required to find the animal that you're looking for. And now apparently it's pretty common, I'm not surprised, that people are hunting with drones. I'm not even sure there's anything wrong with that. It makes it easier for the hunter, okay, to identify where an animal is and head in that direction. But this particular emailer was quite concerned that, it is a potential problem. I'm not sure what the problem would be, but if you want to pick up where that email or left off, let's go. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. My favorite is when you pick up the phone and give us a shout and do exactly that during this break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number three. Say good morning to the president of United Steelworks, local 9316. That's Glenn Nolan. Good morning, Glenn. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Uh, well, first of all, thanks for uh, taking my call on that. Uh sad and upsetting days. Uh, I mean, with the passion of Sean is beyond words. Uh, um, his wife and children and his family, we we send our love, prayers and hugs and condolences. Uh, Glenn, I'm sure everybody knows, but just to add the context for those who might not know what we're talking about, Sean Pellis succumbed to his in, in injuries because of the flash fire come by chance back on the 2nd of September. A long struggle. I'm not... I'm just, I'm sure there was burns involved, but Mr. Peddle has passed. And there's a lot of really sad and justifiably so people who are members of your your union and everyone at Come By Chance and the community, and most importantly, Mr. Peddle's family. So I want to echo your condolences. It's a sad it's a sad piece of news. Uh, thank you, Patty. Uh, well, tears are not, not easy. Any of us right now, it's sore, it has taken us. But uh, I just want to say thanks to uh, all Newfoundland and Labradorians, especially yourself, too, for... For all the prayers uh, for uh, Sean and his family, that's what the focus is it's all about. And also, I would say all the politicians from, from all parties, their support uh, to the families is unbelievable. And also, i got to say, our Premier, who constantly checks in and uh, calls and condoles on uh, Sean's family. 
But the reason I'm calling you, um, uh, one of the reasons I was going to wait is uh, I wasn't planning on speaking out until um, we were focusing on Sean's family and the service arrangements. But um, as you know, um, once you post something on social media, it's uh, I totally understand that it's entitlement to interpretation. But I just want to set the record straight on uh, a few things, especially when we're dealing with uh, Bill C-45 and other things. I just want to say that our international union from just six is asking the RCP under the West Ray law. And you hear that quite a bit on our Bill C-45 provisions for, to do an investigation, which has to be done anyway by law. So just want to clarify that. That's uh, And also, uh, the union believes, uh, when we say that we believe accidents is uh, preventable, all accidents are preventable. And that's why we're saying that the government uh, leaves need no... Uh, Nothing on turn when you do it. The OHNX, who, who are very due diligent in our investigations, because I know I've been involved with a lot. And the union knows it's going to take a while for these investigations done, as you heard the minister yesterday um, speaking on that. And uh, we understand that process. And as as we're asking for an inquiry, uh, we know that it will take a while for this to happen, too. But the union just wants all options on the table so we don't continue to deal with this type of incident or accident. I mean... Those are the things that people got to understand. There's, there's, there's a process, and unfortunately, and how it goes is a long process. But we need to uh, to get those processes under uh, investigation and do the things. But I just want to also state, uh, people, I, I've been dealing with it last week, and uh, I'm sure you heard about uh, talking about the safety of our refinery. Uh, I never got a chance last week to call in you when the, uh, the week before when the stop work order was lifted a couple of weeks ago after all the directors were met and adhered to by, by the company. So just to let you know, that as for our safe work on our site, the company has set up a process to follow and to do safe work which, with the process, uh, with procedures and that. And all workers, everybody, and I've been there at safety talks, were given the right to refuse, the right to speak up, and the right. So the company has now has, uh, they always had a health safety team there auditing and answering safety questions for supervisors and workers. But also we have a United States workers uh, person that is full-time safety rep, which is going to help with this whole process and also with auditing. So these are safety factors that are put in place. And also OHNS has also announced. They also do uh, audits, uh, you know, unannounced and are available at any time for workers that can't get answers after following the safe work process. So, all these things put in place that the workers the workers could speak out at any time too and we've been talking at safety meetings i've been there they have a right to speak out and supervisors will get their their answers if they don't get their answers they have a right to refuse and a right to speak out and those processes need to be in place and they've been in place and uh, when workers have an issue they need to speak up and they've been doing that so and they're addressing those issues so all these processes in place are makes us a safe facility to work but if we deviate from any of these processes, the workers put themselves at risk. So I just want to make sure that we state that right now with all these processes we have in place and uh, to speak out and to get those fixed before we do a job and look at the job. Uh, I mean, we're following these processes now, and it makes us uh, a lot safer. But if we deviate or we don't get our concerns heard, uh, we have a process which we will speak out and, and get them heard. And that's been happening. So I, I see a lot of things on social media last week, but, uh, and uh, people are speaking out and they're getting answers. And if you don't get answers, uh, they will wait to do the job until the answers are, are put forward. Are people uh, refusing to work at this moment, Glenn? 
No, they're not. No, no, okay. I have no work refusals. Uh, but they are speaking out, and that's and the company is okay uh, with that, and the unions and everybody else. They have a right, and they should speak out. Uh, you know, they should speak out, and they need to be heard on safety issues to make sure that the supervisor corrects the form. Because supervisors part of it too. We're all one team. Uh, we have to be a team. But uh, that's why I'm speaking out this morning. I just want to clarify. Uh, because I, I watched the news last night, um, and I just want to make sure that we understand, and Newfoundland Labradorians and everybody understands on this process. But our biggest focus is uh, is uh, John and, and the family, uh, what they're going through, uh, to which we, well, I, I have the words to the truth, so, but. Uh, Did you know Sean Glenn? Uh, no, I didn't know him very well, but I got to know his family, and uh, you know, I'm sorry, I, I met him, but you don't get to know everybody sometimes. Sure. Yeah, you feel you feel yourself like, why didn't I know this person? Why don't I know that? Oh, no, no, I'm not trying to make you feel like that. I was just no, curious know, if you I had know. personally had a relationship. You question yourself all the time, right? You question yourself in everything. Uh, unfortunately, that's what we do to ourselves. But, but at the end of the day, I just want to let you know the workers, the union, and the company, we're all having a difficult time with Charles Passy. And the injured workers, and we're all working with the families. Everybody, uh, everybody's working with them, from from the union to the company to all our co-workers and everybody around the family and everybody. We're working with the family. That's what the focus is right now. And we will get the processes, and it's going to take a while. But I just want to speak on that, just to let you know, uh, on that post that was out. Uh, Bill C forty five is law, and uh, the inquiry is a process. And I don't want us all get. Uh, we will work on those things and get answers. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I just appreciate um, uh, everybody and yourself getting things out for this family and uh, for the workers. I didn't speak a lot about it when you're in hospital because, um, you know, that's the privacy. But, uh, so I was going to ask you, you know, there's one uh, person remains in hospital. And not to get into their private medical matters, uh, do you know how they're doing? Uh, well, I won't. I won't speak. Okay, on that. we'll leave it at that. That's okay. Yeah, I will, You know, I won't speak on that. But uh, I just need everybody home, and uh, uh, that's what we need. So, and we'll work with them um, to help because they have great support systems with their unions and with the company and with their coworkers and with the communities. So I have to say, the outpour uh, it's amazing. But we we can't have these things happening. Uh, we just can't have it, and uh, we all have to work together to. Uh, to make it we need to go home go to work safe and come home safe that's that's should be the slogan for years and it's never like that patty so yeah i mean safety is obviously top priority especially in an industrial setting yeah. like come by chance and you've mentioned westray law just so people know what we're talking about westray law was created after i think some 30 years ago there was a methane explosion in the westray coal mine and as a result of that this was the legislation that came out of it the westray law regarding investigations in these types of incidents just wanted to give folks an understanding of what westray meant uh, i wish you and your members well uh, our condolences to the pedal friends and family and to wish the speedy recovery of the one person that remains in hospital. Glenn, you're always welcome when you have an update to offer. Well, Patty, I really appreciate it, and you're absolutely right on the West Bay Law, which is 30 years ago, which I attended uh, in April, and you're absolutely right, and uh, people can look that up. But anyway, just uh, thank you very much, and uh, to Sean and his family. Uh, um, we're, we're there for you. We're, we're all, everybody's there for you. But thank you very much. Thanks, Glenn. Take care. Okay, bye. All right, bye-bye. Glenn Nolan. 
is the president of the United Steelworkers Local 9316. Okay, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going to Fogo. Say good morning to Mayor Andrew Shea regarding the situation with doctors on the island. Talk away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to Fogo Mayor Andrew Shea. Good morning, Mayor Shea. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Great today. Thanks. How are you doing? Yeah, good. i got a couple of issues. I'd like to think about the ferry just for a minute first, if I could. Sure. Um, we're having some problem. Like, uh, we worked with the Minister of the Year. We had the best schedule we ever had in the summer. Best schedule, perfect. Uh, we had excellent service, lots of tourism. But what I want to talk about today is the day-to-day operations of the ferry. People that are actually making the decisions on when the ferry don't go, when she stops, things like that. Because we've had a couple of instances the fall that cost uh, the town of Fogo Island or the people of Fogo Island thousands and thousands of dollars. First of all, they were going to take the ferry off and not replace her right in the busy time of the season. Uh, one uh, particular person who was in the bed and breakfast at $2,200 would have... Uh, uh, of uh, what's the word I'm trying to find? Cancelled. You know, he was cancelled. His uh, $2,200 worth of stuff was cancelled right away. And uh, that, you know, and all the people had cancellations immediately. So there was a number of things that were cancelled. But after we got the theory straightened out and she wasn't going to go out, you know, wouldn't only taken off, uh, we managed to get her to get the things fixed. So the ferry broke down. Then she went to Lewisport for uh, um, for um, repairs and uh, to be inspected. So the inspection was done. She was in there 12 to 14 days. She came back to Fogo Island on Sunday. And Friday, without notice, the ferry was taken off in the middle of the day without anyone being notified. And an inspection was done on her lifeboat after being in Lewisport 12 to 14 days. Um, after that, when she came across... They lit the, lit the traffic off. The gates closed on the wharf, and they did an ins- they did a fire ins- they did a fire drill in the middle of the, the week. Friday is the busiest day of the week. They must know that you can't do it on Friday. You do it on some day when you're not busy. But you know, and we had two loads of traffic left there. You know, waiting had no idea what was going on. No communication. Uh, people went out for the ferry at two o'clock, and got on Fogo on at about ten. We had stuff that was sent by the hospital at 2 o'clock to get to the lab to be analyzed in Gander that lifted the, the, the hospital probably at uh, 1 o'clock and never got there till 10. So this is not good enough. It's time for the government to look at this, the people who are actually doing the day-to-day operations of the ferry. Because if they're not doing a job, they're not planning anything, they're just letting things happen. Do we happen to know, Mayor Shea, regarding uh, fire drills and what day they're held on? Is there, you have to have X number of fire drills per X number of days and they were running out of time? Or do you have any explanation at all? Because it does stand to reason on a busy day, we try to avoid any operational hiccups, including a fire drill. Well, it's the Department of Transportation's regular uh, inspection. You know, they have an inspection once a year, and the government knows when it's happened. So it's pretty easy to, you know, schedule this when when you got a boat to replace her. But when you let them come out and do a fire drill, my God, you could do a fire drill during the dinner break. It only takes thirty minutes. You know, you don't you didn't have to hold up a ferry for a fire drill or to inspect the boats when she's in Looseport for. For, for two weeks, basically, getting inspected, and they don't do the boats, and they don't do a fire drill. She's fully crewed. You know, this is poor planning. 
and it's time for the government to look at it. It's not Lewisport doing it. It's not the people on the ferry. It's someone in St. John's who was in charge of the ferry. Uh, the day-to-day operations need to be replaced. He needs to go, or he got to be transferred somewhere else. We had an incident the year where they scheduled a 6 o'clock trip in the morning, an early trip. Uh, they put it on the tape at uh, 20, after, uh, 20 after 5 in the morning to put it on the trip. They put it on the tape that the ferry was going at uh, 6 o'clock. She went with three cars, come back with none. You know, we had the salt and sand being hauled to Fogo Island during the folk festival weekends. We have two folk festivals, big folk festivals. One is in the Itrich's Point and one is in uh, the Brimstone Head Festival. They hauled the salt and sand for the winter during those festivals. We had to contact them to get it canceled. You know, this is the busiest day, the busiest time of the year, not only in the week, but, you know, there's, there's nobody listening. There's nobody looking at the things. You know, like we've been in the ferry business long enough. We should know the busy days of the week, and we should know when the slow days are. Well, I mean, I haven't been on the Fogo Ferry in 25 years, but I can guess when the busy days are. So if they know operationally exactly what's going on, they have the historical data, they saw what happened last week, surely we can make better decisions that don't have that type of negative impact on two loads sitting on the wharf while there's got to be a drill. Look, they have to do the fire drills, but it's when you do them, I suppose. Yes, sir. Fire drills are done regular on the ferry. This was a special one for for, for the Department of Transport, the federal one. So when they were doing the inspection, you mean to tell me they never had 30 minutes to do a fire drill? Yeah, of course they did. Or, or to inspect the lifeboats? And they had to come and on the on, in, on the Pogo side of the ferry, where the ferry was landed on Pogo Island, to do the, do an inspection of the life rafts. It's, it's incredible. And the only way, the only solution to this is the government has to look into who's doing the planning, because there's absolutely no planning. Things just are let happen. It just happens, you know, like they just... It just happens. It's like nothing was put on. We got the 511 number. So when there's any correction in the ferry schedule, I get my phone rings and uh, and it comes up. Ferry's off schedule. There was none of that Friday. So if we got those systems put in place, what's the good of them if no one is putting anything on it? Understood. I know you want to talk about another issue before we run out of time as well. Yep. Yeah, the doctor. I don't know if you got the information that I sent in to you, if you got the chance to read it. I did, yeah. Got yeah. in front of me. You know, you see the problem. We had a doctor who was willing to come to Fogo Island because our council has been very involved with the uh, with the medical association. We've been with uh, with the college of uh, physicians and surgeons. We've got great contact with them. We have great contact with the minister, and we have great contact with Central Health. But this doctor applied to come. He was fast tracked. He says in his letter that he was fast tracked to get through the system. He got fast tracked at the college. And he was okay to go. So he thought the next process was to contact uh, Central Health or contact the hospital in Fogo. So he contacted them and never got a call back for some reason. So he contacted me. I gave him the information. So he figured it was just a matter of making, just getting it straightened out now when he can come and what he could do. Just because, just for the sake of the listener. So there was two different doctor stories regarding Fogo Island. One with the Massachusetts practitioner and one with another fellow. I don't know if we're allowed to give his name out of this part of the public. Mind giving the thing. I, I got permission to do this, give you the letter and all that. I called him first. He's okay with it. Okay, so Dr. Marco. Dr. Marco, yeah. Right. So the two different things. Let's stick with Marco for a second. Is, you know, they can talk about at the provincial level and at the college streamlining the, uh, pros, uh, the process for accreditation and licensing and what have you. This is a national paperwork 
warfare that doctors are forced to engage in, whether it become for a locum or for, or for a full-time position. It seems to me, for some reason, look, we've got to have patient safety in mind. We've got to have qualifications front and center. We've got to make sure we're doing the right thing with the right people in the right area. But it seems like it's an unnecessary hurdle that is just way too much. And like Dr. Marco said, and what other doctors have said to me is, if I have to go through the time, the effort, and the money for this kind of stuff, I'm not doing it. No, that's exactly what he said. And you've seen the final letter that he wrote to me, right? Yep. And, you know, like he, this fellow got a practice in New Brunswick. He's, been, he's done uh, locums in B.C. and locums in none of it. And once he was cleared by the college, he had none of this to do. You know, so you got two different lots of stuff that he has to do. And the, and the one at Central, now I'm not down on Central Health. Don't don't get me wrong with this because this might be a government, this might be government regulations that requires this. I don't know. But my purpose for phoning here today is that this, this one at Central Health be completely wiped out. You shouldn't have to do that. When you're, when he got approval, fast-tracked by the college, that he was, could he come here and, and be a doctor and do locums, he should have been able to come here. A hundred percent. And just to complete the doctor, Paul, someone, I can't remember his name from Massachusetts. So that story really grabbed a lot of attention because here's a doctor that has 50 years of experience or somewhere like that. And he was a graduate of Mons Med School and he was been practicing virtual health and he wanted to come on his own dime for three months, not to be compensated. He paid for his own lodgings and stuff that really fell back to. And I know Minister Osborne said that they would pay for his licensing fee, but it's important to have the, uh, the full story out there. There were some things that he needed to do, like every doctor needed to do, to check the certain boxes. And this wasn't about time, effort, or money. This was about willing to do what's be asked of every single healthcare professional, and he wouldn't do it. So this is not just government's fall down on this particular one. There's more to the story. And I just oh. I just think it's always fair when we put out all of the issues that we can verify. There were oh, things no. that the doctor refused to do. So that's that. So I thought this was important for this to go to VOCM so the people in Newfoundland can hear this. Oh, yeah. That you got a doctor that passed the board examination that didn't have to do an examination, but got through fairly quick. They fast-tracked him, only to be hung up by, uh, I think there was eight eight things he said that he had to provide to the uh, college. But in Central, he said he had to provide 10. And some of them are the same one he had to do over. Like, you know, the same thing was repeated. And not only that, but since he called me, I talked to him on the phone. He said that it was actually about 15 that was required by Central Health. So he just wasn't going to do it. He never had the time. He's a busy person, you know. But yet to go in other provinces like D.C. and, and none of it, you know, the security, none of it. He didn't have to do this. He just, when he, once he was licensed, got passed by the college, he just could go there and do his work. And I don't blame him. And I think that would be a common reaction for many, many doctors to do exactly what Dr. Marco is doing. I mean, I can think of just off the top of my head, some other stories where we've had people hired, jobs offered, ready to go. And because of the the obstinate approach taken by the health authorities and or the college, they don't come. Remember, there was a radiologist hired to work at St. Clair's. He was finishing off his helicopter's pilot license. He was going to be a couple of weeks late. They said, shag you. What? I mean, we had a position go unfilled. This guy's from here, was willing to come back home and be a healthcare professional in this case, radiologist. And the radiologist story in Central is obviously well understood as well. But this Dr. Marco story, we cannot have this happen, not even one more time. No, if we're no, in a crisis, then we have to avoid these stories. And I, I might just, can, just conclude with one other thing. We have a doctor lined up, you know, and working with the, the, the minister and working with the college from the United States whose father was originally from Jobot's arm, uh, Kim Donahue. She's willing to come here to spend the rest of her days being a doctor. She's in her 40s. She wants to come here. So she's going through the process now. 
But this has really got me worried, this final process at Central, you know. I think the government should abolish that right now. And if there's anything there in Central Health that needs to be looked at, then it should be moved to the college and they should look at it when he gets licensed. And then this should be avoided because we want Kim Donahue to come here because she's going to come here for a doctor. Mm-hmm. Permanent. So we don't want this to send her off, and, and you know, she not she not finish her application type thing. You know. Understood in full. I appreciate the time and the information this morning, Mayor. Yep. Thank you. All the best. Bye bye. That's Andrew Shea. He's the Mayor of Fogo. Uh, yeah. I mean. There's always going to be a process. There's always going to be some time required to do some paperwork. There's always going to be some evaluation of your credentials. But we don't need the redundancy or the overlap where you got to do the same thing twice. Once for the college, once for the health authority. I mean, these could be left hand and right hand really being a bit more in tune with each other because we do have a health care crisis. It doesn't matter what anyone at any level of government says. They cannot have a replication of this Dr. Marco story. A person ready to come or Dr. Donahue, a person ready to come. Let's make sure we figure it out. Before we get to the break, regarding the question regarding drones, uh, some information coming from some hunting enthusiasts, including our good friend of the show here, Hollis Yetman Jr. It is illegal to hunt with drones in Newfoundland and Labrador. In addition, biologists are also saying that cell phones and social media are changing the big game results why because people are posting and texting locations of big game so quotas could see changes in some areas it goes on to include aircraft including drones and vehicles it is unlawful to chase or harass any wildlife with any aircraft motor vehicle boat snow machine or all-terrain vehicle of any type to hunt with any to hunt any wildlife with or possess any loaded firearm on any aircraft motor vehicle snow machine all-terrain vehicle of the type such any vehicles used for transportation to and from the hunting area illegal to use any aircraft to search for or locate any wildlife for hunting on your own behalf or on behalf of any other person. Thanks for the info. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the fact that Newfoundland Labrador Hydro selling off all of their assets, meaning trucks, the Mack truck and other fleets of vehicles at the Muscraft Falls site. Sole source contract went to Richie's. That's not sitting well with some, including Sean Roach from Roach's Auctions. Don't go away. Let's go. Line number two, say good morning to Sean Roach with Roach's Auctions. Uh, Good morning, Sean. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Great today. Thanks for asking. How are you doing? I'm doing, I'm frustrated. I'm frustrated. Um, here we are in 2022, and the government comes out and they said years ago that you're going to give local business the priority over mainland interests and everything else. So at the end of August, I learned that the hydro had approximately 50 vehicles. This is what I understood. It was about 50 vehicles because all the decals were still on the vehicles. We're going to auction, and I inquired as to how this was happening without a tender coming out. So no one from uh, Nalcor, except for one lady who I worked with in the past, because all my calls for six weeks went unanswered. So um, she came back and told me that there was no RFP, no RFQ, nothing like that was issued. And as far as she could see, there was no contract in place. And that the uh, the inquiry had been put up on the uh, on the totem pole to try and get an answer. So, like I said, for five weeks, nothing happens. Out comes the auction, and so CBC called me last week and asked me to do an interview. I did the interview, and I assumed it was still only 50 vehicles. I did indicate that I was not sure <clears throat> if this <clears throat> if this Mack truck and the heavy equipment, the loaders, the cranes, the big generators were all part of it or not. But that based on the 50 vehicles, the pickups and the big, and the SUVs, that you know, $100,000 was paid extra to this mainland bunch that local companies should have had. Now, 
CBC didn't come back to me and ask for, me for an update after getting a response from Hydro. And then I hear Andrew Parsons on the uh, radio this morning on BOCM stating that Hydro uh, said there were specialized items and they felt better going with a national auction company without going to the tender process. So, okay, first off, we've done head-to-head with Richie's in the past, and we've come out on top. And they came to our show, and we ran it just like we did when I worked on the Hydro, or the uh, Hickman Equipment bankruptcy back in 2002. As you recall, it was a John Deere dealer that went bankrupt. Mm-hmm. And we went to auction. Uh, I was working with another company called LBG Auctions, and I learned that uh, all the equipment was removed to the mainland if Richie's got the sale. So working with LBG, I told you know the management that this is what's going to happen. So we got the sale. We did it in Halifax. The sale went $21 million. Um, this national exposure I have been working with for the last 30 years has helped my own local company here as well. We did all the smalls for Hickman Equipment. And in 2018, we did the Onder RV. We were the only local uh, bunch that were invited to bid against four national, as they call them, national auction companies, is what uh, Minister Parsons commented on this morning. Uh, and we were the high guarantee. We gave the best guarantee. So we ended up at the auction. Richie's senior vice president for Eastern Canada came to the auction, and it was run just like Richie's or any of the other national companies uh, would run their sale. So that was a $1.45 million auction, $1.45 million. So now you've got, I thought it was 50 vehicles. Now you've got 3,000 lots going for hydro. And I don't understand how this came to be. I mean, Sean, let's yeah. just say all the bigger, you know, the Mack pumper truck and whatever other assets beyond pickups, heavier light duty, does Roach's auction have the, the reach to do what Richie's do? I mean, we do know, and I know you will concede, Richie's one of the biggest industrial auction houses in North America. Do you have the reach that you could have done what Richie's did? Okay. First off, Richie's are the biggest global. They're global. Okay. Uh, you're right. Sorry, I misspoke. So do you have the no, reach no. available to do what Richie's is able to do? Right. I just want to give uh, due diligence and due credit where it's due. Richie's are a great company. Okay. Um, the local guy here and I used to get along. Now he's got me blocked because I came out with about this. But anyway, uh, social media. But yes, we do. Uh, Richie's has a, a following, but we also use the same type of platforms as Richie's do. Uh, we were on proxy bid and we're on high bid. In fact, if you went on the roachesauction.highbid.com today, you're going to see an auction we're doing this weekend. We have one and two year old uh, fabrication pieces that are going to auction. We have saws there that are thirty and fifty thousand dollars. We have township materials there. We have a loader there bought to one of the local townships. That's going to bring sixty five, seventy thousand on the auction this week. And it's a seventeen year old machine. Um, it doesn't matter if you're using Richie's or Roaches or you're using uh, Tommy Toad on the street. I mean, you know, when you've got the equipment and you're using your uh, advertising to the maximum everybody's going to get the response. And we would have gotten the response on that equipment. So for them to come out and say that they or specialized equipment is malarkey. I mean, they didn't even inquire. In 2018, we did the hydro auction, and they had 50 vehicles up for bids. So I asked the lady, the same lady who gave me the information, that there was no RFQ out. I said to her, I said, what do you think the auction's going to bring? She said, I don't know. We figured about 150, 200 grand. I said, if we don't get 350 out of this, she said, I said, I'm going to hang up my hat. 
she said, seriously, 350. I said, 350, 400. And she said, okay. And then the guy walked in the office and they took seven bikes and a pickup out that were given to local fire departments and stuff. She said, okay, what do you figure now? I said, I'll tell you what, when I finish tagging the items, I'll come back. I went back in on Friday afternoon. She texted me and she said, what do you figure? I said, 450. We ended up getting 492,000 because of the way we did the auction. It was laid out just like you would with any of the big national companies. And she came back after the auction and said, you know what? All the response we got was positive. You did a fantastic job. So we were good enough in 2018, but we weren't good enough in 2022, not even to get a response. Um, all my messages and calls, nobody returned my call except for this one lady. There's nobody returning my call on this, and it's an outrage. I mean, you know, here we are. Like in 2018, we did $2.8 million worth of sales. In 2020, we did 132000 COVID has been detrimental to the auction industry in and around Newfoundland. So to give uh, this to a national firm without so much as a tender for the local guys, I mean, you know, so much for supporting business. It's strange, and this is the comment that I made was, even if the government thought that Richie's Brothers was the very best option given the fact that they're the global leader, we cannot leave it up to whether it be an independent agency, board, or a crown corporation, or the province itself to just make that predetermination. We have to put the RFP out there because it cannot be about what they think is the best. It has to go about what are the responses to the proposals requested, then match them against each other, price point, reach, quality, track record, because it's fine to think, well, riches are the biggest and the baddest and the best. Yeah, but let's let the market prove it. Because, you know, we can't just say, well, I know based on reputation that this pen or paper or pencil uh, provider is the world's best. Yeah, but maybe dicks can win the contract. So we've got to do it just for our own protection. Every single time. Procurement is a real mess sometimes at the government level, whether it be municipally, provincially or federally. Make sure the market response we can pick the best. Sole source is never a good idea, even if that company might end up being the eventual winner. 100%, Patty. Okay, so everybody's talking about this big Mac, Mac pump truck. Like That truck is probably $1.8 million new to buy today. Okay, so they got six hundred and sixty-five or six hundred fifty thousand, whatever it was. So at six hundred fifty thousand, my estimate is that Nalcor paid Richie's fifty-three thousand dollars strictly on commissions. Fifty-three thousand on a one piece of equipment. So when I was saying there was going to be a hundred grand saved, that was to the CBC report. Uh, that was in relation to fifty vehicles. If three thousand lots were for sale. There's well over a million dollars that could have been saved to the taxpayers of Newfoundland and Labrador. Sean, I appreciate the time and the topic. Good luck. Thank you, sir. Like I said, you know, uh, just take a look at yourself. Just look at roacheshauction.highbid.com and see what we're doing this weekend. Will do. Absolutely. All the best. Wish you good luck with it. Thanks, Sean. Bye-bye. Sean Roach with Roach's Auctions. Very quickly, a piece of research done by Dave when I talked about in 1977, Mr. October, Reggie Jackson, with a three-home-run game in the World Series. Only Babe Ruth had done it prior. Since that, a couple of times. Uh, Albert Pujols in the 700 Club. Albert Pujols, 2011 in Game 3. And Pablo, Kung Fu Panda Sandoval, 2012 in Game 1. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Okay, let's go. Line number one, Glenn, you are on the air. Hey, good morning. Good morning to you. Uh, I just uh, 
I was just going to, I was in St. John's, I brought my mom in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I got a long drive because I got to drive a half hour to get a half hour back to my house and three and a half hours St. John's, three and a half hours, and another hour when I get home. It's nine hours driving, gets in St. John's and her appointment's cancelled. <sighs> Happens way too often. Make the best of it, though, is what I don't understand. She had to phone in yesterday and get the actual time of day. You know what I mean? So she had to call in between 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. So we gave her appointment for 9.30 this morning to be there for 11.30 for an operation on her knee. And she's 80 years old, right? And so I had to get her up. So she had to get up this morning at 4 o'clock. Never ate since yesterday. You know what I mean? Did I buy her a couple of sandwiches? We comes out, cost me 22 more bucks. But anyway, sorry to point. Now when she goes back, once before she goes back to that operation, Seven days prior to that, she got to go in for, you know, pre-op stuff like that and blood work and everything. So that's got to make another trip, a trip in there again to bring her back to the brace. And another trip, like three more trips to, uh, before as far as if the appointment don't be cancelled the next time. Because they had no nursing staff in the recovery room. You know, I mean, we're we're talking about healthcare, which still has big reliance on using the fax machine, for goodness sake. And I, you know, curiously, I got an email during the newscast about a fellow in a very similar situation. He was working out of the country, and he got uh, notice that his uh, his appointment had been cancelled. But they either sent him, they phoned him, or something, as opposed to send an email. Look, if I have a haircut appointment this afternoon and it gets cancelled, I'll get a text and an email. If my hairstylist can figure it out, maybe healthcare can do a bit better job with points of contact things that you can actually get like a text and an email if that's on their database that's a real surefire way to make sure that you keep the best effort to let people know before they drive in from Bonavista or from St. Lawrence or wherever that your appointment is cancelled save people the frustration and the, the expense well I done the same thing two months ago I had a, I had a appointment in there and I got in there and called me into the office and cancelled it I was there, sat down, they told me to take my coat off and everything. Yeah. You know what I mean? I said, this is great, it's 7 o'clock in the morning. Well, now I drove four hours to get there, three and a half hours. I said, this is great, now get in, gone. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's frustrating. And, you know, let's just put the uh, shoe on the other foot, though, too. It's also important for patients. If you can't make it, cancel your appointment. I mean, how many, like, I went to a doctor's clinic uh, last week, and to see a sign out front that says how many patients have not shown up for appointments or whether or not you're supposed to get an MRI or an ultrasound or a CAT scan or whatever it is you're getting done, if you can't go, cancel. And if we're going to put that pressure on the patient, let's put it back on the healthcare authority as well. If there's something wrong, spare me the drive. Yeah, well, I, I agree with you there because when I was in the other day for mom to get her pre-op net done, and then I heard the lady say there for the blood work, she said we had eight cancellations this morning. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I know it both, works both ways, too. I know that. Oh, I know you do. I was just throwing it out there for the purpose of conversation. Yeah. yeah. Like, like it's 200 bucks gone, and, you know, they, they can gas and everything, you know, this easily. And you got to take, like, an, like my mother... I got basically lug her out in the car. Just can't get her out in a wheelchair. You can't get her in the car in a wheelchair. So, like, she's very, very crippled, right? And I can't even stop nowhere to do anything because I can't leave her in the car. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, I don't know. I just figured I'd give you a call and point you down. I'm sure there's a hundred more in the same situation. Not a lot more than a hundred. So. Of course there is. And on top of that, it's the 200 bucks. But now... She didn't even have her appointment. There's a medical concern that goes unattended to, and you're eventually going to have to drive back in. 
And he is, well, you know, she's all hyped up and nervous about this, this operation. Now, ah, that is gone. Now she's got to start it all over again. Understood. You know what I mean? So that's like she's, no, she's not like uh, 21 years old or nothing, so... I totally get it. It's frustrating, and you're right by saying that there's hundreds more out there in the exact same boat. Glenn, I appreciate the time this morning, and wish your mother well for me. Thanks for talking to me, buddy. Take, Take care, care of yourself. All right. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, we just have to be able to do better. Like I said, if I have an appointment at the hair, <laughs> the salon, <laughs> if I get that cancelled and or to confirm that I'm coming, I get a text. I mean, no more surefire way to communicate with your customer or your patient by sending them a text and or an email or the combination. Let's go. Line number three. Good morning, Barry. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. Patty, I, I didn't catch uh, much of what you're talking about, but I did catch about the drones and, and hunting and that. Yep. Uh, I didn't catch what you were saying about it, though. Someone sent an email asking about the use of drones. I put it out there to see if anyone was interested in talking about it. A couple of people sent along actual uh, portions of the legislation regarding pestering animals, whether it be with the snow machine, ATV, drone, or any type of aircraft. So that's basically where the conversation went. I see, yes. Uh, for hunting now, of course, it is illegal to use drones for the purpose of hunting. Uh, when drones first came out, Patty, uh, I don't think that the, there was any legislation or, or anything about it that I, that I noticed, but there is now, of course. Uh, it is, uh, it is uh, unethical. It is uh, breaking the fair chase rule. And that is, uh, if, uh, if I don't have the drone, well, I can't see anything around. But if I have the drone, then I'm unfairly seeing everything else that is around. Uh, it just breaks the fair chase rule of hunting, uh, as well as it being illegal. Um, there is a lot of use of drones, and I think that there may be more people using them than, uh, than meets the eye. Uh, and it is wrong, and it is illegal. I'm not sure what kind of penalty there is for it. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, 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 it's just illegal. So, you know, on top of that, it's unethical and breaks the fair chase principle. You know, it shouldn't be added. The, I, I, with the with speaking about drones, up, Patty, uh, I've introduced the idea of, of drones to the government to for the uh, moose aerial surveys instead of relying on helicopters. You can dro- use the drone technology, uh, but that's not a conversation for another day. Um, but uh, touching on drones and aircraft. Uh, there seems to be a big lot increased use of helicopters these days. And a lot of hunters are recognizing this. Now, you know, the outfitters use helicopters as well. And, uh, you know, we hope that they're doing the right thing. And I would say 99% of them are. But uh, when it comes to private individuals, you see it on Facebook. My God, they're, they're, they're in and out, hauling out moose like you wouldn't believe. So, uh, I know that in some provinces in Canada, and I know that in Alaska, they have the 24-hour no-fly rule. That means that once uh, once you uh, uh, once a hunter gets aboard whatever type of aircraft and gets to their destination, a camp in the country or whatever, then they have to stay in the camp for 24 hours before they are legally allowed to hunt. Yeah, that's interesting. And so I know someone who's uh, in a similar position, or at least an outdoor enthusiast like you, Hollis, uh, sent along an email 
today. But he also added this caveat, uh, in addition to some of the clauses from the legislation, is that he has spoke with biologists that say that cell phones and social media are changing big game success rates as well, as people are posting and texting locations of big game with their fellow hunters. As such, quotas could see changes in some areas. That's an interesting piece. Yes, no doubt about that, Patty. That is a good thought, and it's a different kind of thought as well. Uh, it's kind of along the same lines of the uh, governor with their five-year moose management plan when they put out the densities of the moose. It kind of directs people there. Uh, is that guaranteed uh, you're going to get your moose? No. But, uh, you know, it, it certainly makes a difference. Uh, and I agree that people posting on Facebook, there's the same thing as salmon fishing. There's not much salmon on the go, not much moose on the go, and all of a sudden somebody's got one in one area, posts a picture, that says first two, and then naturally uh, the floodgates open. And that does more harm than good. Yeah, we're probably not going to be able to do much about that. You're, can't, can you actually tell someone that uh, I've seen lots of moose in this particular area of Area 3 or the salmon are running today and this portion of the exploits? Like, I don't even know what you do about that. It's one thing to control pestering the moose and using drones or aircrafts or snow machines or what have you. But it's quite another to tell me I can't text my buddy who's out hunting the same day to say, well, by the they're over here. Right, and there's nothing wrong with that. That 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 that's that's the back in the day uh, communication. Absolutely. Go and came on to go on Facebook. Came on to go. You call your buddy and see you know see if uh, there is any moose in the area that you're going to, and hopefully they're telling you the truth and not leading you down the road. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that kind of stuff, that's just how the world works, you know, to give someone a leg up, regardless of what it is, you know, whether it be the prime ribbons on sale at Dominion, <laughs> you know, people are going to talk like that, regardless of we're talking hunting and or anything else. Uh, Barry, anything you want to add on that particular front before we say goodbye? No, Patty, that's about it. I think that, though, that, that it needs to be looked at with the use of uh, aircraft and hunting. And uh, I, th- I think myself personally, and I know that the outfitters are going to hate me for this, and I'm not directing this at the outfitters, but I think that there should there needs to be a, uh, a 24-hour uh, no-hunt uh, time after flying into a camp because uh, I'm, it seems that, and I'm not making any accusations, but it's, I would not be surprised that there are individuals out there who are flying and spotting and shooting the same day. Yeah, no doubt they are. I remember a story a number of years ago, someone who I happened to know, they were they got caught hunting from the helicopter. That's pretty yes, famous. I probably know the same individual. Appreciate the time, Barry. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Patty. It's always been a pleasure. My pleasure, sir. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, so let's take a break. When we come back, the announcement that came from the province, basically in an effort to... We'll react to the fact that so many people in the whatever it is, the mythological middle class, weren't getting some of the tailor-made packages of support coming from either the federal government and or the provincial government. You know, there was an increase in OAS, 10% for 75 up. There was an increase of 10% for those receiving the seniors' benefit. There was 10% increase on income support. There's some support for small business to keep up with the hiking minimum wage, those types of things. But many people in the whatever the middle class con- constitutes these days, some people asking aloud, Where's mine? So in an effort to hit that target and to, of course, people are struggling with paying the bills, the province came out with a package that saw a $500 one-time benefit, non-taxable, and I'm still not sure if there's a relationship with the feds to make sure there's no federal tax on it. If you're, an inco- if you're over the age of 18 or 18 plus and earn $100,000 or less, you're getting a check for 500 bucks. There's a sliding scale right up to $125,000. You'll, you'll receive some $250. Total package cost, $194 million. The caller on the queue wants to talk about that don't go away welcome back let's go line number five tom you're on the air good morning patty morning to you 
I want to start with a quote from a leader that we shouldn't be looking for inspiration from, but who seems like our leaders don't want to say this kind of stuff. But um, last week, we must strengthen our sense of hardship, adhere to the bottom line thinking, be prepared for danger in the times of peace, prepare for a rainy day, and be ready to withstand major tests of high winds and waves. Of course, that was uh, Xi Jinping, president of the People's Republic of China, probably our next dictator of China, the way he's going, with the way their Congress is going. But you know, I, I just you know, I, I listen to our leaders and the messages that they send, which is, um, don't worry, don't do anything for yourself. We're going to magically create money, borrow money. Uh, spend non-renewable resource revenues that we have that we should be using to pay off the debt uh, and give it to people who in a lot of cases don't need it. During the pandemic, there was an incredible amount of savings was created, and and a lot of it was from people who kept getting their paychecks directly or indirectly, and uh, they couldn't spend it on the normal things they spend it on, um, travel and eating out and even childcare, and so their bank accounts swelled. And a lot of people in that category directly or indirectly got paychecks from uh, us, the taxpayers. And then there's a lot of people who are really, really suffering. And, and Dan Meads was on a couple of weeks ago, and, and he was also in Saltwire and Telegram and wrote a very powerful piece. And now we have $500 raining down on everyone. And I spoke to one person who's going to Vegas, and they're going to spend their $500 gambling. Um, I, I wonder how much of the $500 that's given to people will be spent on travel. And just to give people perspective, if someone were to fly from St. John's, Toronto, Toronto to Orlando, um, round-trip emissions per person, two metric tons, that's the, the equivalent to being a vegetarian for 3.7 years, as, car, as equivalent to carpooling for two years, and in the world, 1.4 billion people live on less than that as far as what they emit. And you could travel on an electric train 8.4 times around the world, and it will melt 64.7 square feet of Arctic sea ice. So so as, as, as this decision was made sitting around the table, and I want to overlay this on top of collective agreements that are being signed as we speak and have been signed and have been agreed to, where individuals are receiving $2,000 retention or or signing bonuses or whatever you want to talk to them, plus retroactive pay. So in the case of someone making $50,000 a year, they'll get a $500 check in back to April 1st. Um, for Plus, obviously, their pay will go up. They'll get the $500. They'll get their $2,000. And um, if they're making hundred k, they'll get $1,000 back pay. And if it's a family, you know, when the budget was came out in 2022, there were some pictorials that were put together, and, and one very stereotypical group that was outlined there was two government workers. So in that family, if two of them are lucky enough to be in the collective agreement process, um, they'll get $4,000 extra. And it's not just talking about them. It's just so obvious. I, I just wonder how much of that money is going to get spent traveling, how much, which, which has, leaves the province, no economic value. Um, creates a massive amount of carbon. And I don't know how these conversations, I, I don't know how leaders can balance it. I realize it's difficult to balance it, but, but how many people really needed it? And, and how many people do need it? 
and five hundred dollars, maybe that's that doesn't go anywhere near far enough. And how many people are going to need it again? I mean, everybody who looks, energy is only getting more expensive, and electricity is only getting more expensive. We know that every year it's going to go up two percent. And and how do we balance all that? And how do we as a people? rationalize the decisions we're making and how do we prepare for the future well <laughs> pretty big questions um, i think given the timing the closer to christmas these checks come out the likelihood that 500 will be spent locally increases just from where i sit so that would be a guess that i'm making just like we're talking about just guessing where people might spend it the target audience being the middle class is going to be something that we're going to have to suffer through again in the upcoming elections because all parties covered that particular vote. It's gone from the senior vote, which used to be the largest voting block in the country. Now the millennials are the largest voting block in the country if we're talking federal elections. But everybody focuses it on the media, the middle class. Okay, so we're going to hear a lot of politics surrounding it. Regarding who needs the money, you know, net family income is always a much better way to assess how money could be spent, where it should be spent, and what we think these people may, or what people in that category, whatever the threshold will be, how they'll spend it. So I think it's just a starting point was flawed. That said, the folks that need it the most, how many people who are the ones who are in the state or the worst state of destitute? didn't file their taxes. They're not getting the money. The people who are dealing with very serious matters of homelessness and maybe are clients or patrons of the gathering place or whatever, the folks that actually need another additional support, whether it be in housing, mental health, addictions, whatever the case may be, they're not going to get the money. They're not going to get it. So it really will boil back to tax filing middle class folks who maybe necessarily don't need the cash. Now, no one's going to turn their nose up at 500 bucks. It's not going to happen. But there's lots of stories out there where I hear them all the time. We have a family of four, two adult children. Mom and dad or the husband and wife are working. They're going to get whatever, 1500 or $750 coming into the house just prior to Christmas. And if push comes to shove and they look at their bank balance and talking about the comparisons of who needs it and who doesn't really need it, they don't need it. So it's... It's a huge pot of money. And I know every time there's a government policy struck where, you know, a price tag, in this case, $194 million. Where could you spend that to target the folks who are struggling the most? It's probably not this way. No, you know, and then there's also challenges with the fact that more cash in the hands of everyone is more money chasing after fewer goods, which potentially also increases the cost of goods. And and I know it's difficult, and it's not about who's working and who's not working, and who's you know who's valuable and who we don't value. We we value all our employees, and you know, and in Newfoundland and Labrador, we have the highest percentage of public sector workers in the Atlantic Canada, which by default makes us the most the highest uh, percentage of public sector workers in the country. Um, and I don't know how we you know, and I talk to older senior people who work in the public service, and they're frustrated by the young people because they you know they they don't want to work overtime, they don't want to work their fingers to the bone you talked about it earlier and, and but I you know I sit back and I think so obviously on the, of that mentality you know work 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 obviously and that's not a good thing necessarily either however the economy works because a whole bunch of us are on the hamster wheel and as people get off the hamster wheel and sit back and drink pina coladas um, the wheel starts to slow down and as it slows down there's just less money for everyone but incredibly it seems like we're going to bankrupt ourselves and we're going to dig ourselves deeper, deeper in the hole like, so that the, the people who jump off and, and who uh, in a lot of cases are working for the government. And, and I think when I listen to that poor gentleman who drove in, is there any rationale? Like, do, do we figure out like how much 
when he drove, you know, all that time in, all the way in, how much is his time worth? But also how much gas does he burn? How much carbon? Well, well, I know he put about 600 pounds of CO2 into the air. And when we make up magic holidays and when we're not working to our full potential within whether it's private sector or public sector, there are, there's a cost to it. And as that hamster wheel slows down, there's more and more devastation. And people in leadership positions on all level, including union leadership, need to try and find a way to find that balance because the pendulum has swung too far one way. And we have a lot of really powerful and well-organized special interest groups on all levels who have shaped, have gotten to this point where they've made it to the point where our system is failing. And the only solution is to borrow more money to throw at the problem. But it's not a money problem, as you keep saying. It's a motivation problem. It's a community. It's a communal problem. It's a, it's a, not self-centeredness, because that's not fair. It's not negative. It's just everybody's looking around and saying, well, I'm getting older, or, like, my buddies don't, you know, take week, they take weekends off. They're not working nights. And, and I get all that. I understand it. But, but somehow we have to realize that our system does not work if we reach the tipping point, which we are now, obviously. It's not, it's not, our system is stopping working, and there's no money. Money's not going to solve the problem. It's a... It's a restart. It's a reset. And I don't know how we get to that point. That those uh, that last word has become one of the R words that has been co-opted to mean some really bizarre things. Uh, Tom, I appreciate the time as usual. Thank you. Take, take care. Take everyone. care. Bye-bye. All right, it's break time. When we come back, Darren wants to talk about holidays. What holidays? We'll find out. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number one, Darren, you're on the air. Yes, hi. How are you doing, Paddy? Doing okay. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. I'm just calling in to say, like, um, about the holidays government has been taking that taxpayers don't get. Like, it started with, it starts with the regatta day, for one, but, like, uh, the Queen's passing, they took a holiday and never gave no one else it. So I wrote the Premier's office there about a month ago about it, and I still haven't got a response on it. And, like, even the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation, I wrote, I called them last year about that, and they said, oh, it was a spur-of-the-moment thing. And now the people I've been talking to in government now, they're not the actual decision-makers, but they say, oh, we're still working on that. Like, it's been a year now in the progress, and they're just working on it. It just seems like it's okay for them to take a holiday, and everyone else got to go to work. And now with them taking holidays, they're closing down schools and daycares, and I'll have to take time off work to be home with my kids, right? Now, I don't want to be home with my kids one day, but I'm not missing out on pay, right? So that's, that's my issue. And, it's, and I've been writing and calling them for a month, and I still haven't got an answer back. I just I just find it like it's unbelievable, you know? Okay. Do we want the government giving out these stat holidays ad hoc to the entire community? I mean, I think there's a question whether or not we should be having these Queen's Passing holidays and the like. Uh, but do we, you know, so it's one of two things. Either we don't like that or people want it to be offered to everyone. For me, I think offered to nobody is better than offering it to everybody, personally. Yeah, I mean, if you can't offer it to everyone, then no one takes it. Exactly. Like, and since August now, I've missed three days of work because, because of this, you know. It just seems like they don't, they don't care, right? I can't, you can't get an answer on it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. If, I don't even know what the answer would sound like, <laughs> to be honest no, with you. No, because I mean, something like this is pretty simple. It's, it's you know, 
like you said, it's either you give it to everyone or you don't give it to everyone. It's right and wrong, you know, in my in my opinion. But it's just it's just mind blowing that I can't get an answer back on this. And like the, the last gentleman phoned in with the five hundred dollars, they're give, like giving us back of our own money. Like that's money that I lost in the last two months. And it's, you know, it's just it's unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, I, I I totally get where you're coming from. For instance, like, I try not to sound like I'm irritated if someone got something that I didn't get. Like, whether it be supports during the pandemic or a holiday or whatever, because I, I don't feel like that, so I don't want to talk like that. But I just want it to make sense, you know? Of course, yes, the Queen reigned for 70 years. She was an important figure in many people's lives. I totally get all of that stuff. And this is not to besmirch her or to besmirch the monarchy. But we're also talking about a woman who lived a rich, full 96 years and served as a public servant for 70 years people might love or hate the monarchy that's not the point it's whether or not it's required for anybody to have been given or granted a holiday because of her passing you know it's just do do things make sense some holidays of course make sense now you can throw in the St. Patrick's Day and St. George's Day and all these types of things you know I know there's full well in argument pardon me go ahead schools and and daycares aren't closed for St. Patrick's Day or St. George's Day you know? Yeah, I, I wasn't making a point about whether or not school was closed. Yeah. I'm just all the holidays that are on the books. Yeah. Oh, yeah, well, geez, we, we can get into everything for that matter, for the amount of holidays that they take in the run of year. My, my main concern was they're, they're closing them down, and plus with the schools and daycares. And so that's forcing people, it's, it's either forcing the, whoever's working to either take a holiday, um, take unpaid leave from work, or, um, you know, or find other arrangements at the last minute, you know, type of deal, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's my issue. It's just like like I'm 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 taking unpaid leave from work, right? I only get two weeks holidays a year, so you got kids. I mean, they're they're sick all the time, you know. And with COVID on the go, I mean, they had a little sniffle. You you, you couldn't bring them to daycare or or school, you know. So that's just my 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 thoughts on it all. Like, and you're talking about the Queen, but I mean, like the. Day, uh, National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. I mean, they just you give a holiday and you look at the politicians and I mean they go get wear an orange shirt and get a picture and get the day off work. You know, and they, they have they had a year like the answer I was told last year was a, was a spur of the moment thing, like this year with the Queen's passing. But now they've had a full year to work on it and it's still the same, right? I just don't I just don't get it, right? And I, and I guess I won't get an answer from a politician, not an honest one anyway. Well, I don't think there's a so-called honest answer coming. They did it because, you know, like most things in politics when it comes to these types of snap decisions, they basically just put their finger in their mouth, stick it out the window, see which way the wind is blowing. And yeah. so that's how these decisions are arrived at more often than not. And is this not just about the queen or anything else? This is just sort of governing by polls, right? And But therein lies, I think, the larger question or the rub about people getting time off where the entire place has been given a shop closing holiday, a statutory holiday, where people have a chance to catch their breath. Like, for instance, a stat holiday in February where many provinces have a family day and we don't and people are wondering why. I don't think there's a bad argument for, say, 10 holidays per year on top of your own work vacation. You say you get two weeks. So, yeah, yeah, there's nothing wrong with getting Victoria Day off or Labor Day off or whatever other 
other uh, day because, you know, that does give people a chance to catch their breath, a little break. There's nothing wrong with that. But when we have these out of nowheres kind of decisions, it does have an implication. It's easy enough for the federal government to say, federal government employees and employees of federally regulated industries, you get the day off, everyone else, it's up to your boss. So, I mean, that doesn't even sound fair, let alone is fair. No, and the majority of employers, you know, you're going to work. Like, it's, yeah. it's, like, it's, it's like the regatta day. Say St. John's is closed, like Walmart and Sobeys and Dominion is closed, but right next door in Mount Pearl and CBS, everything is open. You know, that's that's another one that's like, I don't know how, how that even is, is going on. It's, it's discrimination, really. <laughs> Yeah, it's you know it's a fairly strange one, no doubt about it. Um, right. Well, that's all. That's all different. What kind of worms that we're getting? It is. But yeah, that's my thing. My thing was is just three days now in the last two months, and then with the last collar with the five hundred dollars. I mean, that's just give, like give me back what I asked, right? Yeah. Anyway, Darren, points accepted here. I appreciate you making time for the show. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully, some politicians are listening. Thanks. No, no sweat. Stay in touch. Bye bye. Yeah, you know, the whole bit about stats, it will be a bone in some people's bonnet or a bee in some people's bonnet because there's a part of, and this is not a reference to Darren at all, is some people, if I don't get it, I don't want anyone to get it. Eh, You know, whether that be supports or pots of money or rebates or tax cuts or something coming from the government and or holidays. There, I think there just needs to be a distinct need for how important is it for to make an announcement close by where the upcoming holiday will be. For instance, the Queen's passing. And if you, had, if you got that holiday, fair enough. Good for you. It's the big question as to whether or not it's actually something that's important to do. You know, and what is the associated cost to it? We don't necessarily get those answers. Like, remember when there was the thought floated that there'd be a national holiday to commemorate the passing of Queen Elizabeth II? Business community immediately said, how much is that going to cost? And, you know, there was numbers flying around, like $2 billion, $3 billion. It doesn't make you a bad person or anti-monarchy person and or a crank to ask those questions out loud. You know, what holidays should be holidays for one individual sector of the economy and or for all has, like shop closing holidays? There are fair questions that we could and should be asking. When it comes to people getting paid holidays that are outside their vacation days, there's lots of good reasons as to why that happens. And, you know, I don't think it's a dumb idea to have a February stat holiday that people can look forward to as well. So all the while, when we talk about healthcare workers or whatever and the whole work-life balance, sometimes... It's as simple as knowing you can look at the calendar and two Fridays from now, you got a long weekend coming because it's whatever holiday, family day coming up in February, like they would have in Alberta, for instance. There's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes that makes it easier for people to manage because you know what it's like. You're like me. If you got something to look forward to, it makes it easier to get through today. Whether you got a holiday coming up, whether you got a birthday coming up, whether you got a stat holiday coming up. It's funny how, without huge implications, that gives you a reason to not be as crooked or as tired today because you look at the calendar. Hey, there we go. Two weeks from now, long weekend. Beauty. Let's take a break. Today's a good day to get on the show. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211 or elsewhere, toll-free, long distance, 1-888-59-TVOCM, which is 8626. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Uh, a couple of people made the interesting point during that break that Remembrance Day isn't even a holiday everywhere across the country, right? You know, holidays for all kinds of stuff, but Remembrance Day isn't one of them? That's an interesting point and a fair one to be made. I got to go back to the story. I didn't talk about it off the top. Someone wondered why, but this is, and we talked about it last week when it came to 
privacy breaches and potential criminal acts at the Bayvert Peninsula Health Center. The story last week was just all bad enough. Two gentlemen who were in very poor health had intimate pictures taken of them and there was nothing they could do about it. Right? And in the two cases, we're told that it's pictures of their genitals. I mean, whoever is at that is, doesn't belong in anywhere close to a healthcare setting for sure. So we don't know the status of the person or people who did that. And then there's another story about another privacy breach and the absence of dignity afforded to another resident. And this is a poor woman who's 92 years of age. So the family was informed that there was a case where there was people talking about and laughing about this woman with an earshot of her. Something to do with an accident, we'll call it, in bed. And so... You know, while we talk about staffing ratios and that type of thing, these particular instances are so disgraceful that this has nothing to do with uh, the numbers of staff per patient. This has nothing to do about oversight and monitoring. This has to do with the lack of dignity afforded to people who are in these facilities where they have to be safe and cared for compassionately. So taking pictures of people in their hospital bed, regardless of their state or their medical condition, don't do it. Don't do it. You can only hope that the RCMP will do something about this. They are investigating it. And then this one here. So the families advise, and of course they're horrified. Like you and I would all be if we heard that about our loved one, whether it be Nan or Pop or Mom or Dad or one of these facilities. Then the cold comfort offered to the family is, well, the staff in question aren't currently caring for your mom, so hopefully that makes things better. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. It absolutely has nothing to do with making anybody feel better. If they were willing to do it to that woman, they're willing to do it to your loved one. And it's not just about in this one facility. We hear the stories. We hear the stories far too often. But something has got to give. Imagine that being either a defense or something put forward to tell the family that everything's going to be okay because now these same people who are taunting and laughing or mocking a person within earshot of that person won't do it to them anymore. It doesn't mean they won't do it to somebody else. And even if there's a lesson learned, there's got to be a price to pay. Anyway, then you go on we talk about, like it might be me one of these days and it might be you listening to the show this morning or someone belong to you in a care facility. Personal care home, long-term care, acute care. And we've had these numbers thrown around in the past with just how many people uh, in this province in long-term care are being given antipsychotic drugs and or are living in restraints. There's always going to be the need for both of those to be tended to. If your loved one for their own safety and the safety of others needs restraints, that's so sad to even say out loud, but in some instances, it's required. If your loved one requires an antipsychotic drug, then sometimes that's going to happen. But when you look across the country, and we are so far out of whack with the number or the percentage of our long-term care residents who are in restraints or getting antipsychotic drugs, some of the times of which they're not even prescribed these, there was no diagnosis requiring these drugs, then you have to ask the questions out loud. You know, as opposed to the inappropriate pictures or taunting the lady, when it, we talk about those things, the question is whether or not that is absolutely a, sta- a staffing issue. Where the staff with the inability to attend to one resident or another thinks that restraints might be the go-to option, that can't be the case. We can't have anyone living like that. If there are people in long-term care who are in restraints today that really don't need to be or should not be, then we're asking some pretty massive questions. Which leads me to the point I've been making for so long, it's almost a little blue in the face. We know the numbers. 
we can see them as plain as the nose on your face about how many people are approaching or are in their senior years and what kind of supports they will need, whether it be with uh, expanded home care, whether it be with, and I know that many people who know more about it than I do think that's where we should focus, expanding home care opportunities versus talk about institutionalizing folks, totally get it, but we're not prepared. And because we're not prepared, before we know it, it'll be the 11th hour or it'll be chasing our tail. The chaos and the worry and the concern that will be offered by individuals and their families is coming. It's already echoing through the trees. We can hear it every single day. Even if it's things like the numbers of Canadians forecasted or predicted to have dementia or Alzheimer's in the next 30 years. Where are all the pragmatic moves being made on that front to ensure that we're going to be prepared for what we're told is coming. And it is coming. So in this province, whether it be, yes, expanded home care, and I know that Suzanne Brake has been very helpful for me to try to understand better issues facing seniors and what will work better for them, the research done into their overall health and well-being and their happiness. So where are we in expanding home care services? Well, whether that be for more and more people working in home care and the required rate of pay to ensure we have the best people working there. The type of training afforded to these folks because they're doing critical work, whether it be expanding the opportunity for family members who so many would so desperately want to take care of their aging and potentially becoming more and more ill loved one in the home where many of these seniors want to be for every reason you can imagine. So where are we in making those next steps? Because the research is clear. The documentation is out there for all to consume. So what kind of preparation are we doing? I mean, if we have a housing issue today, if we have a home care issue today, if we have a long-term care placement issue today, then this time next year, whatever the issue is, let's say from 1 to 10, it's a 5. I'm just picking numbers. If it's a 5 today, it's a 6 next year. So the hope is for it to stabilize it as opposed to the snowball effect where it seems to be getting more and more prevalent. It seems to be getting more and more problematic. And so let's make sure that it's not just short-term Band-Aid solutions offered to any public policy, but in this case, the conversation surrounding seniors and those approaching their senior years. Let's see what kind of prep is actually being done because we can all see the numbers. It doesn't require any deep dive by academics or public policymakers to know it because we see it. It's happening all the time. And then the numbers I gave uh, earlier regarding the number of retirees, which I think will further the point that I was just attempting to make. In 2022, so far this year, 300,000 Canadians have retired. And we know, and this is not a, a critique associated with seniors, as we get older, we have different types of needs, right? Different types of needs, whether it be healthcare or otherwise and or additional supports. So 300,000 Canadians plus have retired so far this year. That's according to, st to, to Statistics Canada. That's up from 233,000 in the entirety of last year. Add to that, the number of people nearing retirement age is higher than ever before. One in five Canadians of working age between 55 and 64 are set to retire. The average age of retirement in this country, 64. So Stats Canada is providing the numbers. The health authorities are providing the numbers. That prep is of the essence and timing, once again, is, again, to double up that word, is of the essence. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, tons of time to speak with you. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the program. Um, let's go. Mike on one, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. Patty, I'd like to uh, ask the minister 
Health Minister and I had a few questions there about why is it that the Auditor General, back when Julie Mullally was there, she was supposed to be doing a review of the spending of the contracts and stuff with Eastern Health. After she's gone, now it's all gone quiet, can't get any answers, don't know what's going on, uh, basically nothing. Uh, there's one contract that Eastern Health has with a company that states in the contract that they have to follow by all by the chief procurement office uh, rules and regulations and everything else. So under contract law and that stuff, she's responsible for it. But she will not do anything, will not investigate, will not do anything with regards to uh, this contract and of their spending and the breaking the laws and the rules every day. So these are supposed to be our protectors of of uh, our health care and of our spending, the financial and everything else. They're not doing their jobs with respect to Eastern Health, but when it comes to Hydro, who's an easy mark and deserves what he gets, no doubt, but they'll attack them whichever way that they get chance and come out with new statements and everything else. But all this other money that's raised wasted and as far as I'm concerned, it's all being robbed from us, stolen. And, you know, big organizations that are just raking in huge profits from Eastern Hill. These contracts are not legal. And still, these people will not do anything. And now the minister is also the minister of Eastern Health. He's also the minister of the procurement, procurement department. He's the boss over the CPO. Now, I got emails and that stuff there from her saying that, oh, they can't do anything about the contracts with Eastern Health because uh, they're not rules and regulations and they can basically do what they want to do. Well, what's the difference with hydro? Like, there's something going on here and there's interference into the contracts with this Eastern Health at the highest level of government. What it is and how it goes and how high it goes, I don't know, but it's at the very top. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, this is totally and totally wrong. And uh, how that can go about it, how we can get the proper people to do an investigation into these people. Like, for this thing to have worked, for this contract to come in place, there's got to be criminal activity in our uh, health system. Because these people should not be allowing what's going on. The only way that they can get away with it is these people got to be helping them out and leading the way. Like right now, we got a contractor in there with 40-odd people that are members of the that do government work in our government offices, buying and spending our money to their advantage. And, you know, like nobody wants to do anything. Everybody's sitting back, letting them alone, giving them a free hand, sending bills and invoices, charges what they want to charge, Sign off on what they want to charge, telling everybody what they're going to do, what they're at, and everything else. And they're they're ruling it, and they're not a well. What can I say? They're they're not that good of a company. They have leave a lot to be desired in their handlings of the scandals that they had. They're one of the lowest paying employers, even though they're the eleventh billion, eleventh biggest company in the world. And then they're charging us a huge fortune for people who are not as qualified as the government workers. 
so where does it all end? Why don't we have some kind of investigation into it? Why don't? Why are they, they all sitting back and saying, "Here, boys, give us our money. Take it, take it, take it." End of the province, end of the country, and gone. And nobody, it seems like these people, they will not do their jobs. And what the answer is, I don't know, but there there has to be an investigation into this. And more people have got got to demand it. They're taking away our freedoms. We're taking away the rights that our ancestors fought for and everything else. And eventually they're going to have it all taken over. We're going to have to fight for it again to get freedom and to be able to have a competitive uh, economy and a free enterprise. This company is all against that. They're against huge profits for very few people. And we as Newfoundlanders, we're going to suffer for it all. Up in Ontario, I think they had the they lost the multi-million dollar, forty-million dollar lawsuit or something or other. You know, all of this stuff is going on around the world. If people take a look at this company and see what they're all about, and see why we're promoting them, giving them more and more and more every year, and then they'll take them, uh, take money and food at the mouths of youngsters. So. Where all the answers are to or whatever, I don't know because I can't get them. I'm not allowed to ask. I've been to the police. I'm in the process of making out a uh, police report and charge them with theft and whatever of what's going on into the government, more than theft, corruption, cons, and everything else. But I can't do it alone. Uh, I need the help. I need the questions answered. And even the ATIP, the ATIP with Eastern Health, they won't give me the information that I need. Uh, they're withholding it. So now we've gone to the commissioner, and we're still waiting for the commissioner to get back to me. But how far is the corruption in our government? That's the question I'd like to ask the minister. Pretty big question. I can only imagine what kind of response we will get to. Uh, Mr. Minister, how corrupt is government? <laughs> <laughs> well, he knows. And he, he, he was there before, back before John Hagee. John Hagee did absolutely nothing. He was useless into handling anything other than getting on TV to do it and say what he was told to say. But uh, as regards to making decisions or anything or anything, uh, I don't know. I never saw him do anything, do any, any, anything any good. But uh, this whole process there now is greatly flawed. That you know, uh, <laughs> I don't know how to put it. It's just you know, there's people there that should be in jail, and I'd like to see him in jail. But, uh, you know, and like I said, I got enough there to prove that all this stuff, that everything that I'm saying, and that's why they won't do anything about me. They won't come on and say me. You know, if somebody called me a con man, a lawyer, and a thief, and everything else, what do you think I'd do with them? I'd have them in court. I got a funny feeling. No. They won't do it. They haven't got the nerve to do it. Because you know what I'm saying, I can prove it in court. So you're basically daring them. I'm daring them. Yes, I'll dare them. <laughs> Good on you, Mike. Okay. Your hard ticket. Uh, don't take that as an insult. But you, and don't take this as an insult either. You're dog on a bone with this uh, Compass uh, Group contract particulars, and fair enough. I mean, if there's something that's so untoward, and money's leaving the province completely unnecessarily, then there's always and should be questions to be answered here. I don't know how you bled Nalcor into it this go-around. Can you make that point for me very quickly before I take a break? No, just that the Auditor General put a report a little while ago on uh, hydro again. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? Of, of Hydro on that. But why they're a crown corporation? Why is she doing it with Eastern Health? And the thing is, is that I went to, uh, like I said, with Julie Mullally was there, and uh, she took down everything that I, that I said and whatever, and they were investigating it or whatever. But when this, when she got out of it, uh, for whatever reason, I, I don't know, but anyway, she got transferred or whatever, and this other one came in there. Now she won't take my phone call. She won't answer me. She won't do nothing. So why? Uh, you know, I, I just think, you know, boy, come on and say that, well, if I'm full of crap, I'm full of crap. I don't mind somebody telling me I'm full of crap away. And, uh, you know, what their opinion is. And I got mine. And as far as I'm concerned, something at the high level of government is involved into this and getting kickbacks or something or other from this company. And they're known for giving kickbacks. They're known for bribing uh, government officials and uh, leaders of institutions and that and everything else around the world. Anybody think okay. they're not doing it here in Newfoundland with the contract that they got and what they're getting away with? There's got to be something. Like, there's either payoffs, bribery, or something, but either that or there's mouthful. Anyway, Mike, hopefully they'll take your challenge uh, that you've made many times, I think maybe a little bit more forcefully today with the kickbacks and bribery uh, allegations that you're making. I hope you don't get in yourself any trouble, but you seem to think that you don't have anything to fear because no one's challenged you yet, and so they likely won't, as per your own opinion. I think I'm, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but I think you said something along those lines. I'm off to the break, but I appreciate the time. Mike, take good care of yourself. Thank you. All the best. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a couple of people confused as to how and why Mike talks about whether it be the fairies, the contracts, incompetence, who should be getting the work, who gets the service contracts, and yes, the Compass Group, which have extraordinarily lucrative contracts with the health authority. They do. It's true. Whether or not there's value for money spent, I don't know. It's been hard, and we've actually put that question around that particular contract to the minister a couple of times in the past. So whether, and I, look, Mike sends me copious amounts of information and results of his uh, ATIP filings and the like, and he's not making very much headway, but maybe it is time, like Denise Hanrahan and whoever it is that sits in the seat as the Auditor General, and he made reference to Ms. Mulally, and I think she just moved on of her own accord, and now Denise Hanrahan and her team, who have indeed just released their first edition of their audit into Nalcor operations, if it's something as massive a contract as what Compass has with Eastern Health, Maybe it is the next task that the Auditor General's office can take on. I don't know. But in the NALCOR audit, now, of course, NALCOR is not a thing anymore. Everything's been blended into Newfoundland Labrador Hydro. And, of course, Oil Co. splintered away there a few years ago. That issue, and now they've done some work here. They've changed the access to information legislation as it pertains to NALCOR, or pardon me, NL Hydro. They have done away with the bonuses to the executives, and that was long overdue. The biggest one that came out of that, for many or most, is a very similar conversation around contracts. At one point, there was in excess of 500 embedded contractors working on the Muskrat Falls project. It's going to be hard to go case by case to understand who they are, what their experience was, 
how they got the contract, and whether or not they could have been put on the payroll as employees of the Crown Corporation, which would have saved us money without question. Some of those contracts for, with the embedded contractors and consultants came with whopping big sums of money going out the door, huge money going out the door. So that's the biggest thing that came out of it for me. I know there was other issues broached by Ms. Hanrahan and her team, but that story regarding the, the number of embedded contractors, madness. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, whatever's on your mind is what we're hearing on the show. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Well, remarkably, when there was the initial announcement and the memorandums of uh, understanding or declarations of intents on between Stephenville and World Energy GH2 and Stephenville and Germany, the province in Germany, regarding, of course, the potential for green hydrogen to be developed and to be exported from the port of Stephenville, notably to Germany. For the first couple of days, there was lots of interest in the story. There was lots of either uh, comments of support and or condemnation, but kind of just kind of fizzled away. I know that it's hard to follow a day in, day out, every single minute of the day, but this is still a big conversation. Now, Mr. Risley at World Energy GH2 thinks that this is going to happen. He doesn't see any good reason as to why it will not be greenlit based on the work that the province does, the issues they bring back to World Energy, and then, of course, whatever they do, talking about flora, fauna, migratory routes, whatever. And, or yes, the placement of the 164 uh, wind turbines that are said to be part of the plan. And they're just potentially phase one of three of his plans. The consistent reference to it being like Muskrat Falls, if you think that way, elaborate on the show as to how you've arrived at that thought. Maybe you're onto something. If that's constructed in a way where we're protected as Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, and very much unlike Muskrat Falls, where we are the customer. If we simply lease them the Crown land as opposed to sell them the Crown land, if we can find out a way to manufacture some sort of royalty, whether it be, for instance, on water. It's going to be hard to put a royalty on wind, but they're accessing water. That was always an Abitibi industrial use reservoir that they say they don't even need all the water in it, and there won't be any fresh water being used for it. So if we lease in the Crown land, we find a way to put a royalty in place, and we put zero provincial dollars in it, I'm not so worried about that, that project. If Mr. Risley runs up against it with a business problem, a bottom line problem, a profitability problem, then that's kind of between him and his customers in Germany. If any of that falls back on us, then, of course, we've all got ourselves a major problem in the offing. But we've asked the Minister Parsons directly about provincial monies. We asked Mr. Risley directly about provincial monies. And at this point, there is none there. Now, that's not to say something's not going to change in the future. But... If you are one of those folks who thinks this is just like Muskrat, let me know exactly what you mean so we can further consider it and ask those questions because you might be onto something that I haven't considered, but I'm happy to do so if you want to help us understand your POV. Let's go to line number one. Geraldine, you're on the air. Good day. Good day to you. And how are you this, this day? Not so bad so far today. Thanks for asking. How are you? I'm still living in my car. I'm oh the lady Christ. from the car. Now I know who you are. Okay. Yeah. That's been uh, a while now. What are we, a month and a half? Uh, about six or seven weeks. I passed in another paper to Dave Braswell's secretary yesterday. I'm hoping that's the last one. And it's starting now, like, the really, well, it's, uh, well, I had a few cold nights. But it's starting now, like, even affect my health now. Of course it is. What's happening? Yeah. Like, what, What's the impact that it's having? Because obviously if people hear someone who's been living in their vehicle for six or seven weeks, we can only imagine well, what go, it means I, to you. I go to my sister-in-law's to, to see my dog and have a, have a shower and do my laundry. But uh, I don't mind when it's not cold, but then I get out and walk around. I got to because my, if I don't, my needles uh, warp up. 
But uh, like I said, I'm not asking for much. I'm asking for a place for me and my dog to live. I don't expect to live there for free. Whoever that like, and I don't understand more. They haven't got the housing yet. I don't understand it. Is it the dog one of the concerns? Is that what's no, holding this they up? Got, they do. They do have. Um, they do have housing units with pay for pay. I've already asked that. I'm trying to recall, Geraldine, what you told me last time about, you know, I know there's paperwork and there's always going to be some sort yeah. of delay, but what's holding up the wheel? Do we happen to know? I don't know. I had to get a letter today, uh, last week from an EI that I had three years ago saying that I still don't get EI. Now, they got they got every paper that I know of, everyone. They better not come ask and ask for no more because there's no more I got to give. So I gave it in yesterday, so uh, she said she'll fax it off now and see what happens. But it's awful. Yes, oh, absolutely. Well, yes. I can only imagine my it's awful. My friend called me uh, the other night and said they got 170 of these people coming over. Now, I don't knock who's coming over and who's what, but they can't get one little place for me. <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's awful. Then you add into it just how many Newfoundland Labrador housing units should be repaired and hoping for the the new resident, the new tenant, whether that be you or anybody else who's waiting for accommodations. Yeah. So, I mean, Geraldine... I know it's got to have an impact on your mental wellness and potentially on your physical well-being, but are you afraid? Uh, well, I, I've had people. I've had two. I've had one uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, well, the uh, first couple of weeks I was over here, I had one. A couple of uh, a fellow tried to break in the car, and a couple of weeks ago I was down. In fact, it was only nine o'clock in the night. But these people were good people, and I wouldn't open up the window if it wasn't good. Only if it was nine o'clock. And that's the day I was sick, and I, I was after having four or five naps. My blood pressure was gone down right low because the doctor said I got to eat a lot of salt, right? And, uh, but uh, he knocked on the window. Hit this fellow was in his late 50s and had a young fellow there, 30 years old. And he said, are you okay? And I said, yes, I'm okay. Do you want anything to eat? I said, oh, no, I'm, I'm fine with eating. And he, he was asked me a couple of questions, and I answered him. They offered me to go over in their apartment uh, to sleep on the couch. She said, you wouldn't be able to call. I said, no. I said, I'm fine. I said, thank you. And uh, they even offered me money to go and get a hotel room. <laughs> now, that there are some good people in the world. Yeah. Of course there are. And, you know, it's... I don't know the right way to say this, uh, whether it's a shame or it's too bad that we've got to rely on the kindness of others yeah. as opposed to get you into a unit because there's lots well, of vacant I up, units. I went up one night, it was cold, and I said, I'll go up, I'll go to Halloween's there because I've stayed there a couple of times before, like me in the dark for $120 in. That's, that's, that was taxing and everything. I went in, uh, I, I believe it was there a couple of days before that, that was one cold night. And I, I went in the Haldanes and I asked how much the rates were. And I said, I, it was only me. I didn't have the dog at the time. He said, $170. And I'm a senior. $170. That's taxing. And I had to pay $300 to damage deposit. I said, do I look like I'm going to go in and destroy a room? <laughs> I said, I'm tired. Geraldine? I'm tired. I'm irritable. Geraldine, when you go to visit your sister, there's no possibility to stay with your sister, or you just prefer well, to wait for housing? Or? To, I'm sleeping on the couch as it is now. I, I don't want to really to go in to live or to be a bother. Everybody got their own thing to do, and I don't want to be a bother like that to anybody. I never was, and I never will. Has I anybody tried? long enough to do what I got to do, and then I come back here. So are you sleeping on her couch or are you living in your vehicle? I'm, I'm sleeping on her couch when I go over. I'm staying in my vehicle now since Thursday. I came back Thursday. 
Has anyone tried to help you with housing and it didn't work for you, or are you simply holding out until Newfoundland Labrador Housing gives you a unit? No, this is the first time I, I, I applied for housing. First time. And, and I, I go and get an apartment if they're going to put me on, uh, like, a main floor, not the basement, the main floor, because I probably could get up on like, flight stairs, but i got a bad knee. I can't be climbing stairs. That's why I got the seniors rate, and, and i got to get something that's affordable for me. I understand. Keep us in the loop as to what the status is of getting into an NL housing unit, and uh, be careful out there, Geraldine. Oh, I and don't, I mean, it's not for me to tell you what to do or what your sister no. should do or say, but, you know, with the nights cooling off and some of the risks associated with being out in the vehicle, maybe just consider some time on the couch versus in the car while you wait for housing to help you out. So th- I'm just going to throw that out there. I'm not telling you what to do because it's not my place. No, I, I, whenever I, I stay for a while and then I'll go back that way again, like, great. And, uh, like, I, I don't bother nobody over this way, like, there's a couple of people now I talk to, but like I don't go, tr- I don't go uh, talk. Uh, you know, and I went down to a person's place a couple of times like, and got a shower and that. But I don't want to be burdening other people. I'm that. I was never like that, and I'm not going to be like it now. And I got, I got a lot of things going on with me, with my life too. Besides trying to get a place, but if I had a place, at least I'd be able to settle down and and deal with this. Yeah, but it's, uh, it's, uh, it was I, I would say I'm going between my little hut. I call my car my hut. <laughs> well, good yeah. luck in the hut and keep us in the yeah. loop, but be safe. I will. Thank you very much. Hey, Geraldine, take care. Yeah. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Oh, boy. So let's go and take a break for the news. When we come back, the topic, well, that is up to you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, Kirk, you're on the air. Yes, good. <laughs> good morning, Perry, as such as it is. It is. Yeah, uh, I recently lost my father. <clears throat> my condolences, Kirk. What happened? Uh, I really don't want to get into That's it. That's okay. Just, you don't have to. Uh, you know, I'm trying to get to the uh, professional side of it uh, with insurance companies and government departments on both sides of the, the border. Uh, I'm trying. I'm trying to try to straighten out the paperwork and the benefits he's entitled to. And I was trying to get through uh, uh, the Office of Personal Management of Washington D.C. with the number they list as their department, and when you dial it, you get a recording that says, your num- number can't be completed as dialed, please check your directory assistance. So why, why, do we, why are we being blocked, or is, is there a glitch uh, through the phone company, or what? Not that I know of. No, because I tried several times to uh, dial that number, right, because we're dead served with American Air Force Base and like thousands of other Newfoundlanders they did so. So Kirk, what exactly are you trying to get? What documentation or what are you trying to cut through here? Well, he he, re- he received a benefit and, and it was eight, God, I can't even get me words Take out. your time. Take your time. Yeah, and I'm, I got tried to get that cancelled where Dad passed away, plus he's entitled to a death benefit from that U.S. government department, and that was that's only one glitch. Now for the government Newfoundland Labrador, I called the number where he's supposed to get that 
deathbed and put me say and that number is no longer in service <laughs> for any canadian related uh, issues that you're trying to cut through for a death benefit you should go directly to the people that work for you whether it be your member uh, uh, federally or provincially because that's what they're there for so if you're having a hard time and don't have a, a proper number that you can connect with someone to satisfy a death benefit uh, canadian then do that because that's what they're there to do and they should be able to help if they can't then i can get you that help directly what exactly do you need for documentation from the americans uh, i'm just trying to make sure i'm following along with the conversation yeah well i got the documentation there as old as there or there's even the book there's even the book there that, that uh, i found amongst you know papers and stuff like that and like I say I'm trying to make heads or tails of it right Uh, again just so I know what we're talking about what exactly is the relationship between your father's passing and the need to deal with the Americans is there something you need to get a benefit or something you need to deal with his estate or uh, I'm just trying to understand yeah that's that's, uh, yeah because apparently through through them uh, that anyone that worked with them, like say in the excess of ten years or more, okay, right? Uh, there was, uh, uh, like I said, you get you, you you get a pension from them, annuity or whatever they call it, right? And plus, they were entitled to a death benefit, like say for for the widows and everything to help cover the cause of funerals and stuff like that, right? Understood. I'm going to, while I'm listening, I'm going to try to find something uh, for... Okay. I'm not even really sure what I should be looking up here, but I'm giving it my best shot. So, military death benefits. Okay, that's only for Canadian members. Uh, I, I tell you what I will do, Kirk, when the upcoming break comes. For starters, on the Canadian benefits, deal directly with your member because they can help you navigate this. It's always a real nuisance, especially if you're trying to deal with a number that's no longer in service. So when you hang up with me, call the member's office, whoever your member might be. I'm not sure where you're calling from in the province. I'm, I'm com- calling from, uh, what, what's the call now? Carbonier uh, District? So Carpenter is probably uh, Ken McDonald, Avalon, yeah. right? Yeah. So call yeah. his office, someone there, and I hear from his office every now and then. They'll try to help you out, sort out, sort out the Canadian benefits. I'm going to try to find the correct point of contact for well, a green... I know who, well, I know who my senator is. <laughs> I'm going to sound like an American now. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, no, the senator is probably not the best place to go because they'll have staff at your member of parliament's office, in this case, Mr. McDonald, that can help chase that particular point of contact for you. What I'm going to try to figure out is United States pensions and benefits uh, as it pertains to someone who worked on a military base in excess of 10 years. I don't know anything about it, so I'm going to try to find out if I can help you out and yeah. find exactly who you should talk to and how to get to that person, but I'll do that during the upcoming break. If I can figure that out, Kirk, I will call you after the show, uh, okay. but for, right off the bat, call Mr. McDonald's office regarding the Canadian benefit. Okay. okay. Uh, um, also, there was a, an insurance company that, that had a policy with called Sun Alliance Canada. Okay. Yeah, call that toll-free number, and you get a different company altogether that don't even know what Sun Alliance is. Yeah, well, they, that might have been the case of a merger or something. Yeah, 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 and it's trademarked as a bank in Nova Scotia. Yeah, that probably falls under the umbrella of Sun Life. 
Yeah, Sun Life now it's called. Yeah. Now, now, why couldn't they explain that to me over the phone when I called? I called yesterday and I called today. They call themselves CHOP or something now. Yeah, well, they should be able to help you out, regardless if they've been part of a corporate merger or otherwise, because it's just a very general question. So here's a couple of things. Call your member and stay yeah. tuned to this program for a second, because Sandra just called to speak with David. She wants to talk about what you're talking about. Maybe she's got some advice or can help point us both in the right direction. So when I say goodbye, listen to Sandra. As soon as that conversation is done, call Mr. McDonald. Okay. My dad was 89 year old. He served with the Royal Canadian Regiment, and he said, and he, and he served, oh, gee, in excess of 11, 15 years. Okay. With broken service with the U.S. military bases, like in Fort Pepperell, Argentia, and and Goose Bay. Okay. So listen to what Sandra has to say. She probably has an interesting point about toll-free. Like even my toll-free number to call this program, you can't use it every single place in the country. And when you have a toll-free number for an American number, it might only be available to Americans. So I'm going to work on both. Try to get you an actual area code and number. And listen to what Sandra has to say. Call Mr. McDonald's office and let us know what happens. Okay, thank you. Okay, Kirk. Good luck. All right, goodbye. We'll say goodbye to Kirk here now. We'll see Sandra on three. Sandra, you're on the air. Hi there. Um, yes, I just had a point about the Canadian death benefit Okay. Uh, for the gentleman. I just went through that last year with both of my parents. They both passed away. And um, he, all he has to do is go in under the Revenue Canada website and key in death benefit. And there's a form to download. It's really, really simple. And provide a death certificate and mail it to the address provided. And he will receive the $2,500. It's a long process. He probably will have to wait a couple of months for it, as I did. Um, But it, it isn't a difficult process to do. Fair enough. I think his biggest complication is he has a number that's no longer in service. So that's why I put him onto the member's office because they should be able to sort him out or at least nav- help him navigate the system. The complicated thing when it comes to dealing with the Americans, and especially, and I think Dave made a good point, if you have a toll-free number available to an American entity, it might only be available inside the uh, the boundaries of the United States of America. So we're going to try to help sort him out, see if we can get a name and a point of contact, and maybe the member's office can do that as well because we obviously have some distinct relations with the U.S. So we're going to try to help sort Kirk out during this break and shortly after the show. But I'm sure he appreciates your uh, input on how to navigate the Canadian portion of the conversation. And I just I just had another uh, point. It was uh, really interesting while I was dealing with the death of my parents. I had called um, Revenue Canada about a few different things that I needed. And uh, one of the ladies that I was speaking to had asked me um, if I had applied for the child rearing benefit. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I asked her what that was. And she said, well, if your parents had worked any amount of time uh, during the course of their life, um, there might be some benefit that they were underpaid for. And um, so I was like, okay, you know, all of her children are 50 plus. And she said, I realized that, but she said she would have been entitled to it during the time that she reared you guys, like raised you. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll give it a shot. And um, so I did apply for it on behalf of both of my parents. And uh, one of the benefits that came back to me was $50 on behalf of my dad. But the other one that came back to me was 20000 so I was like, wow, uh, I would never have known that had that lady not given me that information. 
So um, just for people out there, you know, struggling to pay for funeral costs and things like that, it certainly came in handy for us. We shouldn't have to know or think of every single question we should have to ask to get an appropriate answer to make sure we get what's due to us. When you call someone who works for a government, they should have the menu in front of them that says, as opposed to you understanding that you should ask me about this little unknown benefit, here's every Mm -hmm. single thing that might be available to you, here's how you're eligible for it or not. It shouldn't be a game, right? This is not a game that people are playing here, especially when we're talking about death benefits. It is, and and I, I have to tell you, like I, I just I, going have gone, having gone through it, it's been it was a very stressful time, and you're trying to, you know, deal with the funeral themselves, and you're trying to figure out all the benefits that, you know, to help you pay for costs, and you know what is what what am I doing right by my parents, and uh, I have to say, I agree, these things should be told to you, and I, like I said, this lady, thank God. You know, she had mentioned that to me because otherwise I would not have had a clue that that would have even existed or there would have been a possibility of my parent, my mom, because it was on her behalf, I would have been entitled to any amount of money uh, from them because of underpayment of benefits that uh, she had gotten over the years. Very helpful, Sandra. Every now and then when a caller says, here's something you might not know, I guarantee you. I didn't know it, and so many people listening didn't know it, and they may be approaching having to have this difficult conversation or already dealing with this life and death circumstance. Now they do Mm -hmm. know. So I really appreciate making time and telling us about this. No problem. You have a great day. You too, Sandra. All the best. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Good stuff there. Okay, final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. And uh, Janet, you're on the air. Hi, how are you? Doing okay. How you doing? Um, I was just calling in about the lady who was just speaking about the housing crisis and how she's living in her car. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of in the same situation um, with my daughter, but we're not living in a car. We're living in a two-bedroom apartment, but it's my mother and my father's apartment, and it's very small, and it's not nice sharing a room with your child. Um, every time I call housing... And I'm on the housing list, and I've been on it for a while now. Every time I call housing, they tell me the housing or promise to other people, which I do not get. I don't understand how you can promise an apartment, a housing unit, when there's emergencies out there. I don't understand how they can say the apartment is promised to someone else. I just don't get that. It doesn't make sense. Well, I think the way it works there is when people are on a waiting list, and let's say, for instance, unit number 12 on Johnny Street, is if someone has been deemed to be the appropriate next tenant for it and the renovations are just about finished, what they do is they call it, we promise you this unit. It's just a way to attend to the waiting list to give people some idea if and when they're getting one. So that's basically what they mean by that, as opposed to we promise you the next three-bedroom or something. Generally, it's about units that are being painted or renovated or repaired, and then you're next. So that's basically the the phraseology they use, that you're, you're promised the next one. Or that one. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And now my other thing is, um, like, I don't understand. Like, we're having such a big crisis here in Newfoundland, and we keep taking in a hundred. Well, we took in another hundred and seventy people. God bless their heart, what they're going through and stuff. But we have a big crisis here now, and now we have like no apartments hardly anywhere to live, anything like that. It's very hard, very frustrating, even for our children. It's hard on our children having to bounce from house to house and stuff like that. Like, it's very difficult. 
and there's 120-odd units or more out there that are not done up and haven't been up, done up in the last, like, five years. It's like, what, why aren't they done up? Like, why won't they do them up? This would solve, solve sorry, half of the problem if they would just do some of the units up or all the units up, sorry. Well, I, mean, I mean, I'm not allowed to stay with my mother much longer because she's in an housing unit. Yeah, so I mean, you're not allowed to stay there? Pardon? You're, you won't be allowed to stay there because it's a housing unit? Or, I'm sorry, it's, what was yes, that point? exactly. I won't be allowed to stay here much longer because it's a housing unit, and it's only a two-bedroom, and it's already my mother and my father, and it's my me and my daughter, my 11-year-old daughter. And it's been not very nice having to share a bedroom with your 11-year-old child. I can understand that. Is there a time uh, of which you are allowed to say, like, is it okay you can have somewhere for three months or two weeks, or is there a determined amount of time? Uh, two weeks. Is it two weeks? Okay, I didn't know. Yeah, I got, she got given two weeks, so, uh, you know, it's very it's it's very difficult, and if they would just do up, do up the housing units, like, I think half of this would be, you know, resolved. Honestly, I really do, because that's the problem. There's, like, over 2,000 or more homeless people now. And it's it's getting worse and worse and worse. And it's just very frustrating and very hard every time you call the office. And knowing that you're on the housing list and, and you've been waiting for a few years and you keep putting it in, in your application every year and... You're getting no progress with it whatsoever. Yeah, um, I had some numbers floating around about the number of uh, housing units that are vacant, and they broke out uh, Lab Weston, for instance, for me. But I'll see if I can put my hands on them. I don't know where they are right at this moment in time. I've got an awful lot of info floating around my head and in front of me on the screen. So I'm going to try to put my hands on that because that's, you know, you're right. In in this neck of the woods, vacancy this time last year was around 9%. Now it's about 3%. So that's even just for private-held rentals. You know, it doesn't even factor in in full the NL house issue but I'll see if I can put my hands on those numbers again at some point today but I wish you well good luck with the Janet fingers crossed you get a spot for yourself and your 11 year old daughter thank you so much and I'll probably be calling in again okay <laughs> enjoy your day you too bye-bye thanks bye-bye all right uh likely last word goes to four Brian you're on the air yeah Patty yeah I'm, I, 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 I'm having a bit of the same problem a little bit my sister died on the 24th of September. And um, I, I thank to Dave, your producer, I found out where Custom Canada was. So I got an OAS and CPP cut out. And so I came, I came to a point, I've got the her credit card uh, cancelled. Well, I've been so been so difficult with the local bank here. I went to see him. They said, no, we can't do it. Um, well, we're done in Saskatchewan, so we got to go out there. And I want to move your credit card cancelled. Why don't you go directly? But why go through the bank at all? Why not just go right to the credit card company? I never thought of that. Yeah, that's oh, what I, I do. phoned them, and they told me I had to go to the bank. 
Yeah, well, I mean, if the bank is in Saskatchewan, if I'm dealing with a credit card company on that front, if I called up, for instance, today to cancel my MasterCard, threaten to go to Visa, they go to the ends of the earth to keep me as a customer. Now the customer that you're talking about is deceased. So why have a customer who was a longtime faithful, uh, dues-paying customer, not just be able to call, for instance, MasterCard or Visa or Diners Club or whatever and simply say, the person's dead, cancel the card. I would go right to the source. Okay, I'll do that. Good luck with it, Brian. Let me know how you make out. I certainly will. Thank you. All the best. Bye-bye. And thanks to David. Absolutely. I'll pass it along. I guess he's probably listening. Okay. Thanks, Brian. Bye-bye. All right. He did indeed have the last word. The callers keep flowing. And you never know what's going to pique the interest of the listening public that will constitute the want to make a call. Hopefully, if there are issues you hear or don't hear that would cause or want you to call, let me know. I'll put it out there for everyone's consideration. Good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning, right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. Oh, and very quickly, you think I have patience? No, Lynn Daly has patience. Happy anniversary, sweetheart. Love you. Bye-bye.